what's sort of what I see them doing with the um, uh, the bills in uh, uh, at the state legislators, right? Is actually, actually, I think sort of brilliant um, in the sense that it is shifting the culture uh, by talking about groomers and you know they're sort of like getting a gay panic here, uh, going, um, but at the same time they're avoiding like things that are hard for them to say, like repealing you know gay marriage. See, so civil rights law is enforced by a bunch of left-wing bureaucrats, and they like universities and they dislike IQ tests. So when it comes to IQ <laughs> tests or anything written uh, paper test that's easy and simple and differentiates people, then it's, uh, it's a problem for disparate impact. It's actually the conservative movement is actually a, something of an impressive machine for taking ideas that are inherently very unpopular um, and then giving them power in, in society. And I like those ideas. I like the libertarian economics. I don't think I don't think society is smart enough for them. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today we're speaking with Richard Hanania, the president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, the author of a new book, Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy, a visiting fellow at UT Austin, and the author of the wonderful substack, richardhanania.substack.com. I tried to make this discussion one of the most realistic takes on how politics actually works as much as possible. Listeners who are confused by recent changes and contradictions will find it both relieving and terrifying. As usual, the best thing you can do for the podcast is to subscribe and to send the podcast to a few of your friends and family. You'd never expect how much this actually does for the podcast. And if you've listened to the last two episodes, you'd know that I did an audio essay for the first and no audio essay for the second. Now's the time to let me know which choice you prefer, as I'm going to make a lot of decisions in the next few weeks about what direction to take the podcast in the future. I'll have an audio essay again today, although a bit shorter than the last one. Who do extremists actually help? That's the title and topic of today's audio essay, applying this idea specifically to the Democratic Party. Republican politicians are all too eager to take aim at a certain group of people. Extremists. They merge Democratic activists, media, politicians, and voters into one huge blob, which they label the enemy. In the case of activists and large media companies, I don't really blame them. They aren't wrong to think that some of those groups will do them harm. But the average Democratic voter? The average Democratic voter is against affirmative action, thinks we need the same or more police funding, and is solidly pro-capitalism. The politicians, they're somewhere in the middle. While red media takes it to an extreme, it isn't necessarily wrong to say that voters and politicians, who in the end benefit and support those extremists and lend them power, are a problem, even if those politicians and voters themselves are not. After all, we do the same thing with Republicans. Perhaps when voters say extremists are the problem, we should listen to them. But aren't they under the influence of Republican media? But wait, even if Republican media were out of the picture, extremists still hurt the Democratic Party. In 2016, the Clinton campaign ran an interesting experiment. They tested campaign advertisements among their staff as well as swing voters. The ads most favored by progressive staffers and journalists made the average voter more likely to vote for Trump, not Clinton. Legacy media coverage follows exactly the same pattern, so out of touch that it wraps around to being benefiting to the opposing party. 
The action of both his vice president and his allies put Joe Biden's record on crime, which was otherwise solid from a conservative perspective, into question. Social progressive activists forced him to adopt unpopular positions on abortion, namely the Hyde Amendment, and transgenderism. In general, legacy media, academia, staffers, and activists all pushed Democrats towards being worse politicians and towards being worse reasoners of reality. Let's say we had a country with two rational, broad coalition parties. Then, we took the major television stations and newspapers, and we bribed them to do two things. One, pretend to be allied with one of those parties, and two, constantly force that party to discuss issues that favored the other party, and fill every screen with those issues until it was all that voters were thinking about. Who would we say these people benefit? Of course it would benefit the other party, and it takes a certain type of delusion and tribalism to think otherwise. Modern social progressives are saboteurs and cysts on the functioning model of democratic politics that have existed for decades. That is why, while Republicans are performatively fighting social progressives, their existence ultimately benefits them, especially Republican politicians. So, here's a plan that every left-leaning American should embrace. Delegitimize, defund, and destroy the power of social progressives in media, activism, and campaign finance. Then, the 88% of relatively sane left-leaning people can steamroll every election while the Republicans deal with the same problem on their end. Don't forget, they have their anti-vaxxers and their election conspiracy theorists, too. I think this essay is particularly appropriate for this episode, because Hanania deals with the same problem in the opposite direction. He's more on the center-right, and his frustration with the anti-vax and election conspiracy theorists come out in his pieces, like liberals read, conservatives watch TV. It was a great topic of discussion, and while I wanted to get to his take on how to solve that problem from the opposite perspective, we didn't have quite enough time. We already covered plenty, including crucial life experiences, feminization, quote-unquote groomerism as right-wing wokeness, psychological differences between liberals and conservatives, mental illness in Gen Z, demagogues, the effect of social media on politics, a thousand true fans, the nature of expertise, and the misuse of philosophy of science by the Weinstein brothers. In other words, it's one hell of a time. Uh, usually I don't have any particular bio questions that I like, so I come up with a new one for each podcast. So this is the one. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think something that almost everyone agrees stand out about your work is your lack of social desirability bias. There are all these quote-unquote contrarians who have their own bunch of tribes and mores that they follow. But you seem to get everyone from leftists to Trumpists to resistance libs to neocons riled up. So uh, how do you do it? You know, it's just, it's a lack of something. It's not, it's not actually having something. It's, it's not having sort of that, uh, you know, desire to fit in with the tribe. I've always been, you know, a little bit like this. I mean, I was, I never really, uh, uh, fit in as a kid. I mean, I was pretty much, uh, you know, so socially awkward. I think I've become better over time. I don't think I'm, uh, I'm that bad anymore. I'm pretty good at forming relationships and, and all that now. Uh, but it took a lot of work. So naturally, you know, I just didn't have the sort of herd instinct that other human beings have. And I've sort of learned how to, you know, build relationships and try, you know, uh, interact with people. I've obviously been, you know, very successful in what I'm doing. If you're, you know, if you can't get, get along with people, you know, people sometimes say, oh, you know, you don't 
understand social. Like, no, I, I, I wouldn't be as successful as I am uh, without so without understanding social norms and without understanding uh, human nature. And you know, in such a short period of time. Uh, but so you know, so I, I did work on self improvement, but at the same time, I always wanted to keep uh, that independence of, of thought on social and moral and political issues. Um, and and I have so uh, yeah. I mean, that's probably why you don't see me just you know being a quote unquote contrarian and then falling into one tribe or the other. Yeah, I think a lot of what creates these habits of social interaction, I think I'm kind of similar, is just how you grew up. So for example, I had a real experience in middle school where I was basically just simulating the Ash conformity experiment over and over again. Like the teacher gets in from the class, this is a math teacher, and uh, she wasn't very good. So everyone was just nodding along until I pointed out and did the calculations. And then everyone says like, oh, they secretly agree with me. And this happens again and again. And these are not like stupid people. This is a quite a good school. This happened the entire year. And it basically just taught me that people don't want to be right. Um, so do you have this type of experience growing up? Is this something that you kind of like had a moment where you realized? Or is this just like, this is just how you've always been? Uh, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of things that actually sort of uh, surprised me. I, you know, I remember, I remember once... You know, just the, the uh, people being, you know, people being right and sort of, you know, there being something called truth, you know, just the way like, you know, there's everyday uh, events that sort of surprised me. So I remember like uh, hearing somebody tell a story, for example, like somebody would tell a story about something like a friend in school would tell a story about that would happen to them. And I would hear them tell it in one context. And then in the, another way, they would tell it, in, uh, they would tell it uh, in a completely different way. And they would change things to make themselves look good or something like that, rather than just like accurately portray what happened in the story. And I remember finding this out and be like, wow, people are just shockingly dishonest. Like people actually, you know, uh, do this. What's Maybe I didn't even generalize to people. I was thinking my friend, I thought that was very strange to me that you would tell one person one thing and another person another. That was, that was a, you know, that was a strange realization that people did that. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of other uh, cases like that. I remember when I was in kindergarten once, this, this story is almost too good, but it really does stand out to me. Uh, there was uh, two, um, there was like two containers, right? And one was a big container and a small container and the small container had more water in it um, and the teacher asked which container has more water uh, and then you know she held up the big container and then like you know I wasn't even paying attention to the question I didn't even get the what, what she was asking but I saw everyone in the class uh, raise their hands so I just raised their raised my hand too because that's what everyone else is doing and then she asked you know who thinks it's this one the small container which is the right answer and one smart kid that I do uh, raised his hand uh, and he ended up being right, of course. You know, I, I found that I, when the teachers, you know, said so afterwards. Uh, so this was always a, also a moment where it's like, okay, yeah, I made the, I made my own decision just based on what the herd was doing. I didn't even know what the question was. I just saw everyone raising their hand and raised their hand, <laughs> raised my hand. And then like, you know, this one guy was, uh, this one guy was right. And, you know, a lot of things are like this. Yeah, actually, this is an interesting question. Uh, were you kind of like a, uh, early bloomer or like a late bloomer like in when you were in high school were you kind of already like a very very like exceptional person uh i was exceptionally an exceptionally terrible person <laughs> so, <laughs> I was, you know i was uh i was uh, my um gpa in high school my uh, gpa and like my freshman year was like 390 out of 410 uh in this school and it was a terrible school it wasn't a good school 
Um, and I, I didn't behave and I was just, you know, I was, uh, I really had behavioral problems. So no, I, I am, I am the ultimate late bloomer. Like, you know, and it got successively better over time. Like, you know, high school, like middle school, just completely worthless, no hobbies, like not, not doing anything productive, uh, in college, um, you know, just like sort of going to classes, going through the motions, not really having any ambition, but like, you know, for like a smart person, uh, finishing your four year degree is not that, uh, that hard. And then like, as an adult, you know, as I sort of developed and dealt with like, uh, social anxiety and just sort of realizing how to deal with people and, uh, you know, coming to sort of understand myself and, you know, how I work and how I could fit into the world, uh, things have gotten a lot better as, as time goes on. So definitely a late bloomer. Hmm. That's interesting. I feel like a lot of what leads to this kind of more skeptical of, uh, social interactions or social incentives or kind of like the narratives we tell about those things or the narratives that are broadly told about those things is like having, having like an obvious, obvious, uh, comparison every time you just basically like live through your normal life. Uh, I think just the story that I told before and like these kind of things just kept happening to me with regards to people who were just obviously incompetent and in uh, positions of even just like mild positions of power, like like high school principals or whatever. Um, I think that kind of experience and not just positions of power, but also just people in general leads you to to this kind of understanding. And a lot of people, I think, especially people who are in just good environments don't necessarily experience this. Like you can have just like smart people who are surrounded by other people who are actually like re- reasonably smart and reasonably competent and reasonably um, not affected or at least relatively not affected by these things. Like you get this with like the effective altruism community, right? Or like the rationalists that they're kind of surrounded by other like smart people, other smart, not as socially affected people. And they just kind of, uh, generalize this worldview and it's and it's uh unfortunately quite wrong yeah i mean for me i mean it, it, it was completely different than that because i mean when i was a kid like i didn't like it was like you know i didn't think in terms of do people know what they're doing or do people not uh know what they're doing for for most of my life it was just like you know why are we doing anything like it you know, i think school <laughs> i think schooling you know there's a there's a great deal of nihilism a great deal of sort of uh amorality but also like you know like school like i didn't understand why we sat in desks all day and like had to like you know do, do these assignments and and stuff like that i mean i was i was pretty you know actually i was um a little bit like sort of gifted but like i never had like a gifted program or something like i knew i was well ahead of everybody and i got bored so like in second and third grade um you know like it was just like so easy and then at some point i just i just gave up because it was just so, it was so boring um you know i stopped caring and i started obsessing about you know so uh, social interactions and trying to be cool uh and stuff like that and maybe that was like you know where i was naturally inclined anyway but basically there was no um encouragement of uh of uh, developing my intellectual skills not from my family not from my community not from people uh in the school life could have been you know probably a lot different if i was in a different environment uh but uh yeah that was um you know that was my experience it was like sort of that that part of me was not uh nurtured uh, in any way and uh you know that that had effects in you know all kinds of sort of unpredictable ways yeah so your family was a palestinian right my my dad is a palestinian christian yeah my mom's a jordanian yeah so did did that have any kind of insight that you have on on kind of the way the media covers these kind of foreign foreign conflicts uh not really i mean the palestinian israeli conflict was not a um uh, you know, it was never like a deep interest of mine. I never, I mean, people find it interesting. I, I never really have. I mean, it's one conflict out of, you know, many in the world. Uh, my, um, 
you know, I think knowing people from the Middle East background, you know, can give you a different perspective. So like when, uh, you know, you see, oh, like the Syrian civil war, it's just the people they hate Bashar al-Assad and, uh, uh, you know, it's the people versus this dictator. If you talk, if you know people who are minorities from uh, uh, from Syria, from the Middle East, um, and I know people who are uh, Druze and, and Christians, of course, who are from Syria or from countries uh, uh, right next to Syria, like Assad is not the bad guy, the bad guy to them. Like the you know the rebels are the bad guys and the rebels are the scary ones, right? And you just see the you know the, and that perspective is just you know not. Uh, you know, just not covered at all in the American media, right? We have these, you know, one dimensional, like, you know, these, there's people in Ukraine right now who are Russian speakers who identify with Russia. I mean, that that's clearly the case. There's, there's zero coverage of like what they think or what they care about right now. Uh, so, you know, it does, knowing people, I mean, from different backgrounds does sort of show you that it's, it's never as simple as sort of the American media is presenting it. Yeah, a big contradiction when I was growing up or like a, or like a thing that was just wrong was uh, a lot of the narratives around uh, China and stagnation because it, it's actually people think like oh what's the effectiveness of our of our kind of propaganda or some of it is true but like broadly propaganda against China and it's the thing that is like people are most skeptical about that people know is like obviously false isn't like the human rights stuff that's totally believable what's obviously false is when they say like china can't innovate china can't form businesses uh china china's growth is like almost over guys uh, yeah. we're, they're not going to catch up they're they're like almost done and and they people keep like repeating that for like 20 years um and i think to like anyone who has any familiarity with the chinese people or with um, even just like what circumstances were like on the ground, this was just like obviously false, right? And it was obviously false and it never corrected. Like, sure, you can say like, okay, yeah, if you don't just know a lot and you make honest mistakes, you're wrong about that for like a year. But you're wrong about that for, for 20 years and you make predictions about like stagnation, for example, and they just don't come true and you just keep repeating it over and over again. I think that leads to like a very cynical world uh, or so, sorry, a very cynical worldview. Like uh, I was raised by my mother and she was probably more uh, anti-establishment in this way. Like she would probably be like someone who like follows Glenn Greenwald on Twitter if she was my age. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. No, sorry. Is there, <laughs> sorry. Was there, was there a question? Yeah. I think, I don't know. I guess we can talk a little bit about foreign policy now, but I think it's one of these things that happens where, you just have a contradiction that's just so blinding, that's just so um, obviously false that you you shock people into into not just changing their mind, but kind of jumping wildly until they reach a new ideology. Um, do you do you think that's true? Uh, so I mean, the China thing, I mean, is is interesting because there you know there's a whole narrative that goes into it. The reason that China cannot innovate and supposedly and it's going to collapse and have all these problems is because it's not a liberal democracy, right? And I think one thing we've learned from uh, uh, you know, it's funny because people think our politics is broken, but I think one thing we've learned is there's sort of cross ideological agreement that democracies are just morally superior uh, to non-democracy. So if you say, you know, you, you have to tell people Ukraine is a democracy and, you know, Russia is not, although it's a little more complicated than that, but that actually seems to work on people. And so people don't want to hear any kind of narrative or China is obviously not a democracy, uh, that it can do things well. Um, it clearly can do some things well. And I've, you know, been does some things poorly. I mean, I've become very, <laughs> um, you know the, the zero the zero COVID thing. I mean, is frightening oh, yeah. at this point, and I it's really changed. I mean, they're not, I mean, it's uh, rare that a uh, one event or one policy has such a um, uh, major effect on my worldview. But this is this is this is no small thing. I mean, the level of craziness 
for you to still be doing zero COVID at this point is absolutely frightening. So it indicates that maybe something is wrong with the with the system. But that's sort of that's not the argument that people who were skeptical of China were making. It's like it's like almost the opposite of what they were saying. They were always saying like you know China has like a plan, but it's like sort of like incompetent and it can't innovate. And it's like no, it's very very competent actually. Um, it just has you know it, its goals just don't make a lot of sense, or they you know or they can uh, take up goals that are just uh, you know there's some pathology that they're you know the fact that they're still going for zero COVID. But yeah, their their ability to do things is actually quite amazing and quite impressive. The fact that they lasted with zero COVID uh, for this long is is actually pretty incredible. Uh, so yeah, it's more, you know if you start with the narrative that democracy is good and authoritarianism is bad and only liberal democracy can work, uh, that's going to shape everything, right? Um, and it's like you know it's very you know, the, the people are simplistic in their thinking on domestic issues, but on foreign issues much much more so because people don't know what hung anything about Hungary or Ukraine or Russia or, or China. You know they have these very you know extremely simplistic models that are you know uh, much more simplistic than uh, than they do on most domestic issues. And it's just like okay, this is a democracy. This is an aggressor. Uh, you know this is a illiberal democracy. Um, and it just sort of like all good things go together and all bad things go together. It's like it can't be authoritarian and also innovative or like Hungary it can't be illiberal but also a democracy the fact that it's you know illiberal that it uh, doesn't have LGBTQ rights and the fact that it rejects immigration means it's not a democracy you can't just say oh it is a democracy it reflects the will of the people uh, but it does things that you know liberals don't like like nope it's just a uh, you know it's just it's not a democracy you know it's not competent it's bad and the, you know it's just it just sort of the, it has to fall into a good or bad category um, you know it's, it's frustrating the, the, the conversation on foreign affairs is you know much stupider than it is on uh, a lot of a lot of other things, um, which is, like, I think, a good case for not being involved in the world. Because I think, it, at least militarily, because I think we're just terrible at reasoning about these things. Yeah, I always thought the argument that the the democracy argument was more something like, oh, as people as people get richer, they'll like they'll they'll want dignity and they'll want like this is like Fukuyama, right? Uh, I don't think I, I don't think that's actually correlated with the necessarily that the government would become incompetent uh if if they're if they're like autocratic right yeah you well you see both you see both arguments you see that from uh fukuyama uh, you know, it, it is like incompetent, like they can't maintain control, right? So they can't uh, brainwash people to like the government or they can't, um, you know, find a way to stay in power. They're sort of, you know, they they at least stop believing them in themselves. That's mm-hmm. sort of the uh, Fukuyama argument. But I think that like you see switching because it's like, okay, first democracy is inevitable. Um, and then, okay, fine. You're, you're stubborn, China. You're not going to become democratic. Okay, you're going to fail. Like the god of, you know, democracy is going to get his revenge on you and you're going to have like a terrible, terrible system. And terrible, li- a terrible life. Uh, so I think I think they're both sides of the same coin. It's b- both kinds of like democratic triumphalism. Uh, just nobody thinks China's going to coll- you know actually collapse now or, or actually democratize. Uh, so that you know it has to be like I think they've scaled back their ambitions of what they predict a little bit. It's just okay, you know things are not going to work work out well, and China's going to face pushback. And you know some of these things might be true or they might be false, but you know the, to the extent we believe them, it's because people want to believe them. Yeah, I think, or actually, first, I'm going to add a little, add a little note, because I think there's a big portion of my audience that's maybe more tech or econ, and they're not as into politics. And, and, and in their mind, that probably reads as a straw man, like the god of democracy stuff, like people really obsessing over this, like magic word democracy. Um, But I can assure you, just like speaking to my audience, that this is, that this is, like, almost like verbatim, how, how many people in um, in these kind of uh, political circles or especially foreign policy circles think about the world. 
Um, related to that is there are these kind of like blobs of ideas that stick together and aren't naturally like aren't naturally correlated, right? You see this with political parties. You see this with kind of establishment thinking. Um, how do you just like in very broad strokes, how do you think that kind of forms? Uh, you mean the correlation between different kinds of beliefs? Yeah. The, these like clusters of beliefs. Yeah. I mean, it's so in the American, I mean, I think that, you know, societies have different, you know, there's different ways to organize these things, right? There's different ways. It's a different system. So in some societies, your ethnic or, you know, your religious group determines 100% how you're going to vote. And, you know, there's not, you know, there's sort of no, very, very little uh, uh, variation within groups. You know, we, we don't have that system in the U S maybe for blacks. And it's very interesting sort of like, Black politics is just how different it is from everything else in America. I mean, I think that's an underexplored topic, how you have this one population that sort of behaves like, you know, they do in sort of developing democracies and every every other group, you know, doesn't or does so to only a very limited extent. I think that's, you know, that's interesting and something that's uh, underexplored. Um, but, you know, in our, in our society, yeah, I think, you know, I think that, you know, the, the, the I think the fault lines tend to be... Uh, um, I think conform- I think conformity is a big one. I think gender, which is related to conformity, uh, is a big one. You know, I used to believe more that some beliefs naturally went together. So, like uh, uh, Thomas Sowell's like conflict of visions, you know, that kind of argument, like, oh, okay, there's it makes sense that you would be uh, for small taxes and also for uh, gun, you know, freedom, uh, 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 you know, for the Second Amendment, the f- uh, right to bear arms, like that sort of goes together. And you know, maybe you could find a way to like. With national defense stuff and like abortion stuff. And, you know, I don't believe that. I think you look across the world, all kinds of om- combinations are possible, right? You can have socialists who are anti-abortion and anti-gay. Uh, you know, you can have capitalists that are, you know, pro-abortion, anti-abortion, the foreign policy views. I mean, all kinds of sort of arrangements are possible. So it's, it really is, you know, tribalism. I think probably best way to think about it is, you know, there's a few big personality or individual or demographic traits that put people into one camp. Uh, or the other. I mean, like, if you know, if you're like, you're naturally gay in America, I mean, there's, you know, there, there is a tribe for you. There is one side that's going to say, you know, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread and the side that's going to be, you know, more hostile or indifferent. Um, you know, if you're a very masculine, say, let's say you're a, um, you know, the opposite side of this, let's say you're a, a male of like average or below average IQ, who's highly masculine uh, and, and you're white. Um, you know, you're getting just just as much as that gay person is getting uh, signals from the right that they're not, you know, they're not the ones who are going to be raised by status by this coalition. You you can see pretty clearly from the left that there's something problematic about your existence, right? And so that person is going to, if they think about politics, is going to be uh, conservative. So you know, I think there's these the, on the broad mass level. I think there's these like you know basic uh, you know these basic uh, categories. Yeah, these like coalitions, right? These, uh, it's, it's coalition. These interest groups. So, yeah. Coalition makes it sound too rational. Uh, coalition is like, you know, pol- political coalitions, like log rolling, like, you know, people want something in each side. It's more, it's more, you know, there's sort of a, a, a cultural thing and you go into one camp or the other. Yeah. So something that I really, really don't understand, um, is, uh, is Asians. Um, because this is, this is where this idea like kind of contradicts, contradicts this, right? And uh, it's a bit different in Canada. Asians are actually like swing voters in Canada. Um, uh-huh. But in the United States, in the United States, there is there is one party that supports active government mandated discrimination against Asians. And uh, it is the party that Asians predominantly vote for. Uh, and I just like really don't understand this kind of puzzle. 
and it's all, always something that I talk to with regards to like uh, with regards to uh, my my friends who are uh, living in America and voting in America. Um, it seems like it, it seems to me like when you have a party that is this like actively antagonistic, it is somewhat difficult to to square that, especially especially like prior to Trump, especially um, under, for example, like Romney, where like. I think the kind of error bars, the kind of uncertainty, the kind of like negative, negative stuff coming out of the Republican Party. Well, what about Party if you don't look at affirmative less... action? Well, what if you don't look at affirmative action? What if you look at immigration and you say, well, discrimination, I mean, what's the worst discrimination, right? Keeping, uh, you know, holding you to a higher standard for getting into college or keeping people like you out of the country? Yeah, that's fair enough. Although I don't think, I don't think the, the Democrats are very pro-legal immigration like they're not doing a lot on terms of being pro-legal immigration yeah. in Relative, actual Relative, legislation Relative, yeah and republicans aren't that anti oh no it's, it's never legal, rational it's never it's never it's just either. like you know it's perceptions it's like yeah I, no i get what you're saying there's, there's there's discrimination there's real policy differences but it's it's actually you know it's like not the exact you know it's 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 sort of it's just relative position you know democrats are obviously more uh pro-immigration than republicans um whether that has an effect or not you know that's not the point people are sort of you know they they build these you know they uh they form these affections just based more on emotion than, than reason yeah, I think um, this is a good segue into uh, some of your articles. You you talk a lot about these uh, framings. And the first one, I think, circling back to an issue that you talked about uh, before is this idea of feminization. And you're not the only one who's uh, gone over this idea. Uh, I think Tyler Cowen has a very interesting uh, take on this as well. But there is this kind of evolving process of basically like safetyism, including like emotional safetyism, people wanting to uh, to address various fears, various uh, low probability events with some kind of government policy or with some kind of uh, action in general and not really considering the kind of the, the downstream consequences of that. So um, why do you think that's happening if you do think that's happening? And, uh, and um, what any, if any, corrections do we have for this? Oh, why people want policies that don't, you know, they don't think carefully about I think that's just, that's just sort of human nature. That's the, you know, that's the, um, you know, that, I think that's expected in a democracy. I mean, I think that's been sort of the stereotype, but, you know, we've known about social, you know, uh, moral panics for a while. Um, you know, yeah. when I was, when I was younger, it was like, oh, the Christian right, you know, they, they wanted to censor people and, you know, uh, you know, like church lady, you know, they, if you, if you watch the Simpsons, do people in your generation, you guys probably don't watch the Simpsons, do you? Uh, I, I don't watch much of any kind of uh, Western shows at all. Okay. Um, well, this, yeah. Well, The Simpsons. I mean, The Simpsons was good when I was a kid. It's not. It's not good anymore. I don't think it's good anymore. And I don't think people watch. It. But everyone of my age, like mid thirties or or older, um, you know, within. 10, 20 years, uh, knows a lot about Simpsons represent, you know, so I was, I was at a group with, a uh, like another fellow, uh, you know, Gen X or whatever I am, older millennial, and then some younger kids and, and, you know, somebody made a Simpsons reference and I was like, oh, ha, ha, yeah, good. And the other half are like, you know, what, what are you even, what are you even talking about? Um, why was I talking about the Simpsons? What were we just talking about? I'm sorry. We were talking about like feminization. We were talking about <laughs> okay. feminization and safetyism. Uh, 
Okay. Well, oh, okay. That's that's where I was going with it. So there's a Reverend Lovejoy and there's Reverend Lovejoy's wife. And every time something happens, uh, the Simpson, she goes, oh, why won't anyone think of the children? Now it's an outdated sort of stereotype because but it shows you the stereotype of like the 1990s of like the kind of person who wanted to censor speech. It was like the preacher's, you know, the preacher's wife, super prudish, saying, think about the children. Uh, and today, that you know, that part of human nature is, is still there. Um, it's just, I think that, you know, the, the conservatives, the cultural conservatives have so little power that they you know they can't affect any kind of uh uh you know it's, been so, it's become so correlated with class that uh you know the, the people with power and influence you know the lawyers the government bureaucrats the media etc are so firmly in one camp on these cultural issues that you don't have right-wing moral panics able to sort of take over society anymore you know people call the anti-critical race theory stuff moral panics you know come on they're not getting like every corporation to like agree with them like the way the uh, the left did after george floyd um and so yeah and so th- this is part of human nature i mean it's taking a different form now i mean the, the fact that class and uh, political views, social views are so highly correlated now. Um, the gender, you know, the, it's correlated with uh, sex, and you know the fact that men and women have different beliefs, and particularly women who um, uh, who have careers are different from women um, who are who become uh, wives and stay at home moms. Um, so the career women have a have a disproportionate uh, influence on what kind of moral panics we have. Uh, you know, this is this is this is something that's you know th- these moral panics are sort of something that's always existed, but there's new manifestation of of them. Uh, d- you know, depending on social and cultural and political developments. Yeah, I, th- I remember in uh, one of your articles, you talked about how like the number one uh, donor group to Republicans is like either welders or homemakers. Yeah, yeah, so, it's stuff that's yeah. not connected to any of homemakers, like retire. It's like the ret- retirees, like yeah, exactly. Like you know, substackers are like probably more like non woke than like New York Times writers, <laughs> right? It's like there's there is this yeah. sort of institutional versus non institutional divide, which is interesting. One one kind of frame that I have for this, and that I don't think I've seen a lot of politicians talk about, is that uh, basically uh, the long arc of history uh, uh, bends towards availability bias. Uh, so you have all these kind of uh, one-off scenarios. You have like George Floyd, or let's say you on, on the on the right wing side, you have like uh, you have like uh, whatever lives of TikTok is posting, right? Like the, these kind of like individual um, videos that are just like they're not a they're not a policy argument, right? They're not a they're not an argument about a widespread problem, but they're just something that is like a one off that is super emotionally triggering. And then you you see these things go viral, and that's just a potential of of uh, that just never existed before, a potential of technology that never existed before. And the more you get better at basically sharing information and sharing fast, the more these kind of like availability bias driven, uh, driven moral panics take over. And right now, I think right now, I think the left is a lot better at using them. But I mean, I I think the right is catching up. I think like Chris Rufo is like a real innovator. Yeah. In like the most cynical sense. I think actually, yes, this is interesting because it's like, yeah, the critical race theory stuff and now the, um, uh, the stuff about, you know, gender identity and like, uh, grade schools. Yeah. I think we might've reached a point. I mean, it's early to say this. We could get to a point or maybe we're getting to a point where, uh, uh, on net social media is better for the right than the left. Uh, because it's all about organizing sort of people with highly, you know, 
highly emotional. Maybe it was all, it was, you know, I think before it was actually bad for the left in the sense of winning elections. Like, um, it ran yeah, because like there were elections. just a lot of insane people being exposed, yeah. right? But, but I will say, yes, that's true. But uh, this is, this is like going back to my article, liberals read conservatives watch TV. What's good for Democrats versus what's good for the left and what's good for Republicans versus what's good for conservatism are not the, are not the same thing. Uh, so it's yeah. bad for Democrats to be as left wing as possible on social issues. It's good for leftism to have one party that is so absolutist. They're, they're dragging everything along with them. And, you know, by, by just like, even if you're the most incompetent party and nobody likes you, you're going to win like almost 50% of the elections. So like to be so radical, um, if you're a left-wing activist, like you want one party to just be as radical as possible because maybe they'll win elections like five or 10% less of the time or, or whatever, they'll, they'll win half as many elections, but they're going to do so much. And they're going to be, you know, just really just putting their foot down on the pedal uh, when they're in power. Um, that if you're a leftist, that's great. If you're a democratic party strategist, you say, no, I, I just want to eke out as many uh, political victories as uh, as possible. Um, so it was good. I think social media has been good for the left, bad for the Democratic Party. Um, and now we're, we are, we could be moving to a point where it might be bad for the left culturally. Um, it might be good for Republicans or it might be bad for Republicans. I don't know. But it does feel like something's changing. It seems like the last few moral panics that are driving, you know, so-called moral panics that are driving things uh, are coming from the right. Now, there's something called thermostatic public opinion in political science um, in the sense that, you know, when like a Democrat is in power, like uh, Republicans are more energized and when a Republican is in uh, the power as in the president, uh, Democrats yeah. become more energized. You know that's why midterm turnouts tend to be good for the party uh, that's out of power. This is something that goes back, you know, many many decades um, in American politics. So maybe we're just seeing that. Maybe the fact that Trump lost, and if Trump had won, maybe the left would be you know much more energized, and Chris Rufo wouldn't uh, uh, wouldn't be as you know uh, getting as much attention. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot that's in flux, and um, I think what we've seen of social media is not necessarily. Uh, it's not necessarily the death of conservatism or the death of the of the right. I mean, it, even who it advantages in the end can change. I think Facebook is, you know, is sort of like this. Facebook was, um, uh, you know, it's it sort of it, on accident became sort of the right wing boomer site. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, it, it, it didn't set out to like it's, you know, it had censorship. It wasn't, you know, it censored, you know, far right, you know, beliefs. It didn't want, you know, it didn't have anything culturally that wanted to be this. But it just happened that the the product was more appealing to boomers. Um, and now you look at like there's this. Uh, Twitter accounts that record like top 10 um, posts a day on uh, on Facebook. And it's all like Ben Shapiro and like Franklin Graham and like Daily Daily Wire. Uh, so, you know, for, you know, whatever, the, you know, boomer conservatism is like, you know, very much uh, uh, advantaged uh, by Facebook. Wait, I, I don't, I actually like don't think this is true at all. I uh, think that uh, the newer, the newer social media sites are just like very repulsive to anyone who is not like, developed under this environment right like tiktok to me is just like incredibly repulsive i hate things that are just like um rapidly rapidly like context switching right if you know um if you know that term it's just like so irritating to me and i feel like you have to be someone who like you, if you're someone who like reads at all this is or like has any kind of like long-term thing that you focus on this is just something that is like repulsive to you right but this if this isn't the environment that you grew up in for a long time then it becomes like hyper yeah, that, that, that's, that's orthogonal to the point i mean it's a, the, the question is not why boomers why facebook was more appealing to boomers right 
It's just the fact that it was. It ended up that way. So like, what's its okay. effect on politics? It's good for boomer conservatism. It's not necessarily nobody. No boomer planned that, or you know, that wasn't Facebook's algorithms doing. It just happened to sort of end up like that, even for reasons why you know you, you could be correct. I mean, TikTok is you know, Twitter. I think you're right about that. I think there's different. Uh, generations so twitter is like sort of right where i'm at you know uh you know it makes it, it, it intuitively feels right to me and i enjoy using it and tiktok is a little bit uh bizarre but i mean you know, i'm not a dancing teenage girl i mean of course i think tiktok will always be for the young i mean right it just makes sense like dancing and you know singing this seems like a young girl thing so i think you know probably tiktok will probably appeal to every generation of young girls and probably less so as they get older yeah going back to the original point i I don't know. It, it. I think I actually just have a very different conception of what kind of conservatism is to the, to the extent that I don't see like the, these moral panics as particularly uh, conservative, even if they're like right wing culture war issues. Right. I, I kind of see conservatism as um, holding a holding over uh, individuals an immense amount of discipline and order. Uh, maybe this is just my, my kind of upbringing, but, but like social media in general, I, I feel like it's kind of like, is like pulling the right towards, towards like chaos extremely quickly. And it is just like, almost like the opposite of conservatism, just as a, as a, like a moral philosophy. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't thought much about conservatism as a moral philosophy. I, you know, I don't, I, you know, it's hard for me to conceptualize sort of, uh, like that is it? Like I, I think of conservative. Like I think of you know, I think of these things as very in very context specific. Like I think I think conservatism in the United States has generally been like the philosophy of just sort of nor- you know normal people. Um, in the sense that. Uh, you know, just the, like people don't like innovation and strange things happening culturally. Um, and, you know, those people are now, now it's become a, it's become a thing where like liberalism has become sort of such an establishment thing that if you're super high on conformity, I think you're going to be, uh, I think you're going to be liberal. And I think this is, this is the Asian thing that we could go back to. I mean, I think Asians are very high on conformity. Uh, so I think that, that there's sort of attraction to American liberalism. Um makes sense but you know it's changing american conservatives i think you're right i think again in my article uh liberals read conservatives watch tv before yes. you know, before, <laughs> so there's a development right there, there were before social media there was you know fox news started in the i think uh, late 1990s uh but what do you have before before fox news and before social media uh you have talk it's radio. like Limbaugh. Yeah, yeah, you have Rush Limbaugh. Okay, but even before that, like that, that wasn't always there, um, or it wasn't a, as big a force like before the 1990s. All conservatism was was like newspapers and magazines. Um, it was like you know, National Review used to have a much bigger influence, I think, in the 19 you know 80s. Um, it was like business groups. It was like civic groups that had like control over the Republican you know the Republican Party. Um, and this was a completely different thing, right, than what the Republican Party is today. So then you have uh, this, you know, this developments that are, it becomes infotainment. So you have, uh, you have, right, you have the uh, uh, talk radio, you have Fox News, eventually you have social media, which eats all of our, all of our brains. And conservatism naturally in, in politics has to be something else, just like liberalism uh, becomes something else, right? I think that's, yeah, unquestionably true. Yeah, so you mentioned your article, uh, Liberals Read, Conservatives Watch TV. Can you just give like a broad stroke summary of uh, what that means? Uh, so basically, there's, um, uh, there's, you know, there, the, uh, you know what, I, it's too, it's so, I'm just going to get the chart, okay? I'm just going to pull up yeah, the chart. Because that, that sounds good. I, I, you know, it's a little bit, it's, uh, it's this, um, 
I'll put know. it in. Uh, I'll put it in the show show notes too. <laughs> I'm just gonna get the. I'm just gonna get the chart because I am. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, it took me so many words to explain this. It's like I like I don't have a good elevator pitch down uh, for this article. You know, the thing is nine thousand words, and I felt like it had to be nine thousand words. I, you know, I didn't think I could. Uh, some of my, most of my articles are much shorter than that, but I didn't think this one uh, could be. So basically, um, if you look at. Uh, Conservatives and liberals. Conservatives get. Um, uh, oh, there's a there's a more fun way to do this. I can uh, I I can quiz you. Uh sure. If you want to do uh, that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, obviously, this is uh this is the title of the piece. Um, we're gonna go liberal and conservative, and then we're gonna go um, each of these questions. Well, I think so for both liberals and conservatives, sort of the empirical yeah, background yeah. you have to give people is if you ask conservatives and liberals, uh, which um, uh, you know where they get their source of information. Liberals are much more likely to uh, read newspapers and serious websites. They conservative probably like a lot, so you can go look at it. It's not that most. It's not, and conservatives are more likely to have talk radio or TV. Not that a lot of liberals don't watch TV. Like if you look at the general population, like TV is more. Popular popular than reading, uh, obviously, but there's a substa- there's much more of a substantial um, uh, group within uh, Democratic voters or, or, or liberals uh, that that actually reads serious stuff. So that's like sort of the uh, background. And then I argue that these are different types, different ways of getting uh, these, these are different different sort of kinds of people who have different ways of gathering information about the world. And this has sort of downstream effects for how conservatism and how liberalism organize themselves. So that's basically the main argument. And then, you know, the chart sort of is just an elaboration on that basic point. Yeah. So, so this is the, this is the kind of lightning round. So what is the driving force between liberals and conservatives? Uh, so I think it's I, I say it's ideology for liberals, and of course you know so many qualifications in the sense that this is like not doesn't describe everything. Yeah, we can do those after. We can do those after. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, liberals are driven by ideology um, and simpli- you know simplifying things. Conservatives by tribalism. Yeah. Um, how do they differ when they're lying? Uh, conservatives uh, lie in random directions. Liberals lie in a consistent direction. Interesting. Okay. Uh, how do they how do they uh, decide on on uh, what uh, opinions to have? Uh, so it's um, what did I say for that? I have to I have to cheat and uh, look exactly how I put this. Uh, so for okay, so this is cool. So from the from the middle, activists and professional class influences politicians and mass opinion. And I say conservatives are top down. It's whatever Trump says. It's whatever Rush Limbaugh happens to be talking about today. It's it's top down versus sort of middle uh, and going up and down from the middle. This part is kind of new, right? This is like this is like post post um, Romney starting with Trump. Uh, no, I mean I think when George W. Bush like you know went into Iraq and then like just tried to change the justification from WMDs to uh, building democracy, like people sort of ate that up. Um, and so I think that yeah, I think it's been there for at least since George W. Bush. Uh, maybe maybe I mean, George W. Bush was really a sort of a watershed for conservatism. You know, Bob Dole's party was something. Uh, George H. W. Bush's party was you know the more business class, the more uh, uh, you know the you could say more more reading, but not 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 really just more sort of uh, uh, mellow, not interested in the culture war, sort of just a different class basis and a, a different uh, uh, aesthetic. And it wasn't it wasn't necessarily top down. They were responsible responding to social forces. I think it was more actually from medium. I think, you know, conservative uh, politicians yeah, like 30 years I, ago. I see that. Yeah, Republicans like 30 years ago were actually more responsive to the activist and professional uh, classes. So they were, they, you know, I think both parties actually, you know, they were more like each other. Like these differences are exaggerated compared to what they were 20, 30 years ago. 
Yeah. Which ones? Which one of these is better at impacting the real world? Uh, liberalism, obviously, I think has uh, been much better at impacting the real world, with notable exceptions on the conservative side, like you know the gun movement and the abor- anti-abortion movement. Yeah. And uh, how how do you left and right like to uh, like to do attacks? Uh, so they uh, it's personal on the right. It's more um, ideologically driven on the left. Yeah, you had this anecdote about like just looking at the cover of the New York Post or something like that, or like Breitbart, right? Yes, just it's all it just, then, yeah, uh, names. It's like Fauci, uh, you know, sometimes Hillary. I mean, the right-wing media still talks about <laughs> Hillary. I mean, after like, you know, it's been six years now and you still like, she'll be like a major, I don't know if still, but on Hannity, like just, a, you know, not that long ago, uh, she was like a major character. I wouldn't be surprised if she still is. I mean, they talk about Michelle Obama. I mean, like who's not a public figure. So it's, yeah, it's a very uh, ta- sort of tabloidy, you know, this is what TV watchers like. They they get bored by ideas. They like They like personalities. Yeah, and what kind of like, and uh, what kind of like uh, historical parallels are there? Uh, so I think ideological movements are, you know, communism, uh, Taliban, Islamic extremism, um, and then conservatives are, are sort of. I always think of them as sort of the right wing uh, dictatorships that were opposed to communism, but didn't really have like much of an ideology themselves, and eventually just you know uh, just became democracies or just sort of became decrepit and just sort of like you know uh, uh, sort of uh, meandered along uh, in these in these uh, countries. So yeah, the, the, yeah, that, to me that, they always seem like just tribes right just like old school yeah, tribes it's the, it's the human it's the human norm it's like you know if like two tribes are fighting each other in some hunter gatherer so you know how their hunter gatherer context i mean they're going to be they're going to act more like sean hannity than like rachel maddow yeah and uh, i guess this kind of answers the next question but like the type of in-group signaling uh yeah so it's tribal loyalty versus uh, ideological purity yeah two two more left for uh uh, we have one which is uh, the ultimate orientation, basically how how um, how it organizes and the main interests. So the 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 uh, the um, this is something you know going back to what we talked about before. Uh, on the left, I mean, the left is basically in control of the Democratic uh, Party. The left is basically uh, advantage. So when there's something that hurts, you know, when there tends to be some kind of conflict of interest between what the left wants and what the Democratic Party is in its best interest, uh, the left gets its way. On on uh, the right, it's different. It's the Republican Party. They 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 adapt to whatever. You know, now you could no longer be openly homophobic, and so they'll stop being openly homophobic, right? Uh, so things like that, and then you know that's probably smarter short term electorally, uh, but changes the culture in a um, in a direction disfavorable towards conservatives in the long run. Yeah, and I think this kind of this kind of connects to your story about like uh, Dems are the real racists, right? I think that's a good anecdote to have just for the audience. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a thing where conservatives will say, and this is a big thing, it's like Democrats are, you know, the, the Republicans are the party of civil rights. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of truth in this and that the sense that Republicans were the ones who um, who were uh, more of them voted for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And if that's all you know, that makes uh, sense. But it really doesn't make sense. I mean, modern conservatism was sort of formed and organized, you know, around Barry Goldwater, an outspoken defender, uh, opponent of um, the Civil Rights Act, definitely an opponent of what came after the Civil Rights Act, I mean, for good reasons, because he was a, you know, he had these libertarian conservative views and what basically the, uh, what the, what civil rights uh, has done, um, besides from, you know, ending Jim Crow, everything beyond that um, has been, you know, an affront to libertarian and conservative values. And you would think that, you know, if you, if you are sort of an ideological consistent party, you would recognize that. But if you're a party of TV watchers, you say, you know, we're the real party of Martin Luther King, uh, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm actually 
not sure where you stand on this as a tactical question. Like you, you can do like a kind of Rufoism where where you actually just like shout progressives are the real racists long enough in order to get it to get it in like the public lexicon. And that's not necessarily because of the civil rights era, but because like, I mean, like, especially with regards to Asians, they are like actually uh, doing racist policies. Um, but uh, maybe maybe like less in general, but like definitely with regards to Asians. Uh, and you can kind of you can kind of make this a thing if you if you just like do it enough. Right. So do you think it's like good for strategy? So I think the ideal strategy, like if I was a, you know, if I'm a conservative and I say, what should conservatives do or what should Republicans do? It would be like. Republicans should do what they're doing now um, publicly. Like Dems are the real racist. Uh, I think that's ideal electorally while having like a bunch of like people in the background, like ready to implement like a hard right agenda as soon as they get to power, which has nothing to do with what the politicians were talking about. This is sort of where the Republican party is. You know, I'm actually, you know, I'm sort of. Yeah, Scott, uh, 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 or sorry, not Scott, uh, Mitch McConnell just like keeps telling like Rick Scott to like shut up about like ending social security or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or you're <laughs> poor. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, but 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 it's actually to the point where they've gone too far in the direction of you know uh, uh, the TV stuff where it comes to dom- it comes to dominate and then they don't end up doing all that much with power. But one thing they do do is they appoint a lot of ju- uh, judges. Uh, so it's actually the conservative movement is actually a, something of an impressive machine for taking ideas that are inherently very unpopular. Um, and then giving them power in, in society. And I like those ideas. I like the libertarian economics. I don't think, I don't think society is smart enough for them. So you have to sort of sneak them, uh, you have to sneak them in there. Um, yeah. But- wait, can we just do like a, a quick clarification? Uh, I think there are a lot of bad faith versions of this, but I think like people in my audience would like generally kind of uh, uh, want this clarification. Um, what do you mean by like an actual like hard right agenda? <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I want, you know, uh, I think that, um, uh, well, hard right agenda would be what, what? What did I say? Oh, for the best. I mean, I would say for the best strategy. So I'm, I'm not. I'm using the words. I'm not using the words as an endorsement of every single uh, thing of this. But you know, just the the you know the simple stuff. Uh, you know, lower taxes, uh, less government spending, uh, rollback, um, excesses of civil rights law, guns, abortion. I'm not saying. I'm saying like if it depends on what you. It depends on what you want. Like so, I'm saying the ideal strategy. Yeah. So so, so basically, we're keeping the elections, right? <laughs> yeah, I think we're keeping we're keeping the elections. Yes, I think you need to keep the elections right. Um, exactly. Yeah, getting rid of that is, is very difficult. Um, but I think that you know it depends on you know what you. I mean, I don't endorse every part of the conservative agenda, but I'd be saying like if you were like you know a person who you know wanted war on you know Iran, for example, uh, which I don't want, uh, you would want to you would want a candidate who says who doesn't like say that explicitly, just sort of says vague things. Oh, oh, Biden's not being tough enough. I'm going to be tough, not say like I want to invade Iran and then get in power and just invade 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 Iran. Right? That's what I would suggest. And it's like that for every part of the uh, conservative. Now, I think on the social issues, which I care a lot about. Um, it's sort of the case, it's sort of different from like taxes or foreign policy and like the way we talk about it is actually the issue, right? Um, so it's like, oh, okay, Republicans should just like use their pronouns to win elections because that will like, you know, if that, if that worked, which probably, you know, that probably wouldn't work, but let's say that worked. Like they should. Yeah, I feel pro- like that's the thing that benefits Republicans. Like more people are kind of like, are like anti-pronouns. No, no, I, know, I, know, I know, but I'm saying like, like, for sake of argument. Um, okay. So saying like, you know, let's say, you know, or like being, uh, you know, like being open to gay marriage, maybe that benefits Republicans now or, you know, and so they're, they're anti-homophobic in their words. Now, one thing we're actually debating, the substance of the argument 
is like the way people talk. Should we be heteronormative as a society or should we be a society that's gender fluid? Now, when politicians just, you know, um, uh, when they just, you know, say that they're okay with homosexuality, there's no difference between homosexuality, heterosexuality, uh, you know, being gay is okay. Then, you know, that's sort of, that's, that is sort of the policy in and of itself because you're changing culture, right? So it's a little yeah. bit it's a little bit complex with the um with the social with the social issues. Um I think that what sort of what I see them doing with the um uh, the bills in uh uh at the state legislators right is actually actually I think sort of brilliant um in the sense that it is shifting the culture uh, by talking about groomers and you know they're sort of like getting a gay panic here, uh, going um, but at the same time they're avoiding like things that are hard for them to say like repealing you know gay marriage. Um, so it is, Yeah, I think like, I think the thing with that is that it's like good tactically, but it's almost like an exact, exact, like imitation of wokeness, right? Like groomer is just like the, the right wing well, equivalent succeeded. of like racist, I mean, I think, right? I, the context is wokeness succeeded more than, you know, anyone could have imagined any movement succeeding. So, I mean, that, that makes sense. Yeah. The, the thing that I worry about, especially because I think I'm like much more, I, I think you're like, uh, clearly on the, on the right wing. I'm like, uh, I'm much more of a centrist, I think. Um, like I have this, like, I have this like meme or this like persona of being like a Biden stan on, on Twitter. Um, I'm not actually, but like you, you have this, you have this scenario where I, I think like politics is just like converging on like stupid, right? Yeah. Like you, and I, and I know you said that like the stuff that you actually do when you're in power is not necessarily the same thing, but it feels like if people are just discussing these kind of things and like everything is a caricature, you you have like one side like baselessly calling each other racist, and you have the other side baselessly calling each other like groomers. This just like this ends up in a world where where like the incentives for for getting like politicians is just super low, right? All your politicians will just be low quality. Well, that's that's that. I mean, that's democracy. What do you what do you want? <laughs> that's Wait, I, I don't think this Plus is technology. Plus okay. social media. Okay. That, that's an important good. caveat because, like, I don't know. Like, one thing that that I've kind of like brainstormed, I haven't put it out anywhere yet, is that we should like maybe we should just make corruption more rewarding. <laughs> Like we should make it so that if you're just like if you're just like corrupt, but you also like do things, if you also like do things that are like broadly beneficial to the people, like kind of like all all of your all of your like nineteenth uh, or like early twentieth century politicians, I think FDR is maybe most known for this. If you're just kind of like corrupt, but you also are like competent, then you just get like more rewarded. Yeah, is that a I thing mean- that maybe we should do? Yeah, this is what uh, there's a scholar named Yunyun Ang who uh, wrote some books on China. Y U E N, then Yun again, Ang A N G, um, who argues that this is some sort of a benefit of the Chinese system. You skim some off the top if you're a corrupt official, that creates incentive for economic growth. You know, the question is, you know, sort of like it depends on the specifics of the system. Like if you just say we, if we just go start electing more corrupt politicians today. Um, you know, that, that doesn't mean that the incentives will necessarily line up or it'll be beneficial for society. So, you know, corruption can be beneficial for society. You have to sort of, you know, but it depends on the context and you have to think about that. Yeah, well, well, like, let, let's do the thinking about that, right? Like, like, I think if, if, if you're in a context where, where postmodernism is kind of like reality, right? Like, like, I think like the 20, 2022 news environment is like, pretty close to what Foucault describes, right? Um, or, or even closer to like what Baudrillard describes, right? Everyone is just like copying things until they're, they're like no, nowhere resembling the, the origin. Um, 
then you do kind of want you do kind of want these kind of like Machiavellian uh, pipelines or these Machiavellian incentives where people can just like come in, make things better, and then like profit off of it and then leave, right? Yeah, how, but how do they? I mean, how do they profit of it uh, off of it in the current American system? So somebody comes in, they take a bunch of bribes. Like, okay, so Amazon is like very un, you know sort of becoming unpopular not with the public. But like with the idiots on Twitter, and so like and, and so and activists, like you know the worst people. Uh, so Amazon is you know sort of. Um, Do you mean like the right wing ones or the left wing ones? Both of them. No, no, the worst people. Okay, yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's... the worst people of everywhere. Um, and so somebody coming like a maybe if that if they actually succeeded, like a president could come and like he could just take all this money from Jeff Bezos and keep letting Amazon do what it wants, and that unquestionably I think would be good for society. Um, and then like okay, like that can uh, that can work, um, you know. So like that that would be like an interesting you know scenario. Another yeah, but another scenario would be like. You know, they just they just start extorting Amazon, and like I think this is like if like someone like Elizabeth Warren was in was in power, they would just use it to build up their own you know donations to demagogue. They would hurt. They would they wouldn't care if Amazon succeeded, uh, or you know, or failed. They can extract something from Amazon just to like make sure they don't like go harder on them, right? Uh, but they don't, you know. So so it's you can imagine both ways. You can imagine a corruption that destroys society. Uh, you can imagine a corruption. I think like a kind of oligarchy where the rich people are in charge is better. And one where the politicians are in charge, because I think the rich people are the ones with more of a direct uh, interest in the well-being of society, right? The wealthiest society produces the most, by far, the most millionaires and billionaires, and the richest millionaires and billionaires, right? And so, like, you know, if you're if you're a, a billionaire, you know, apparently, like, a, maybe me or you wouldn't care that much between one one billion and two billion or three billion, uh, but it, you know, some there are a lot of people who do keep working hard after making hundreds of millions and, or billions of dollars, um, and how big the pie is and how wealthy society is, um, does actually matter to them. Uh, while a politician, a politician is just, you know, trying to skim, you know, as much as possible. And like, it's not like if the a pop, you know, if the, uh, uh, economy like doubles or contracts or whatever, like the, you know, there'll be that strong of a correlation with how well yeah, there's no interest alignment. Right. And, and, and their utility function is not money. Their utility function is often power, right. And influence. Oh, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. And, and so, the, and this is a problem. And so, yeah, you, you and so, um, yeah, it's um, it, it, it is interesting. It's worth thinking about. I mean, I think people think like corruption is, you know, I think what we're getting at is like people think corruption is good or corruption is bad. I'm sorry, and like anti-corruption is necessarily good. And it's like no, I think it's yeah, it's something that's very highly context dependent. Yeah, here, here's an idea. I think actually that that's kind of inspired uh, by this, or this is an idea that I that I had before, but now I think it's slightly different. Is that um, I've been trying to book I've been trying to book Amy Chua on this podcast as well, and she wrote this book called uh, "Political Tribes," which is basically talking about like oh, there's all these kind of um, uh, minority groups that are very very successful in these uh, in these Asian countries and these African countries, and uh, this creates like a room for demagoguery when we just like introduce elections in uh, in these countries, and you get like these these kind of like um, majority demagoguery situations. Uh, and uh, she she like takes takes the U.S. and says like this is basically Trump, right? Um, but that actually seems to me like an incomplete explanation of demagoguery because what I really see is like this kind of like progressive wing. Most Democrats are are, are not like this, but this progressive wing, which is like overrepresented in uh, overrepresented in media and overrepresented in like universities and stuff, they, they really are like kind of like 
following this this like demagoguery playbook but but not against like a minority ethnic group but really against like the self-made basically like this there's this kind of like idea of the coalition of the ascendant um from like roy tushera um and i feel like it's actually like literally the opposite where like if you look at the things they're attacking, right, they're attacking like SATs, they're attacking like, um, they're attacking like these like tech startups, they're basically attacking anywhere where power is like created, where power is like earned by like individual, individual like ability. And you can really see like the, the entire apparatus of progressivism as basically like, as basically trying to like fill in, fill in like up the blank with like the best answer of like, how do we say, how do we say that better people are bad? <laughs> and, and this obviously ends up being like anti-Asian. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, there's a, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot there. Yeah, what drives demagoguery? I mean, is a, uh, is an interesting question. It's sort of, you know, it's just sort of, it's sort of, these, there's human nature and then there's these buttons you can push. And I think one positive thing is it doesn't appear to have that much uh, I think people are too indifferent for it to be that popular. I mean, I think the, the biggest demagogues tend not to get a lot of support and they tend to isolate a lot, alienate a lot of people. Like I think Warren and uh, Sanders are, you know, the biggest demagogues in our uh, politics, um, I'd say more so than more so. Yeah, for, for the left wing, right? Well, I mean, I think. Uh, oh, wait, maybe. even more than Trump. OK, that's oh, very yeah. interesting. I think, I think uh, Warren, I, you know, I think I think Warren and Sanders are, you know, are, you know, would would alienate, would the sort of dispossess and, you know, harm a much larger percentage of their citizenry. And, you know, I think Trump is more, you know, demagoguing outsiders to society, um, foreigners, uh, including uh, immigrants. But no, I think, uh, you know, the, the class based stuff is very ugly and it goes, you know, right there, it cross cuts a lot of American society, a lot more. uh, uh uh, destructive, but the, but the point is, I mean, they're not very. I mean, they're not very popular. I mean, they're popular in the sense that, well, I mean, like you know, like twenty percent of the population loves them, but they can't win uh, the Democratic uh, primary. And the, you know, I think Sanders or Warren would have been done relatively poorly in um, in a presidential election. So it seems like you know, and even the so called right wing populists in Europe, they never, you know, they usually don't do that greatly. I mean, they usually, you know, they'll have like a twenty percent cap or something, or a thirty percent cap of people who really uh, support them. So. You know, one thing we can be thankful for is that, like, people are not, um, you know, people are not as, you know, like, if you look at communism, like the ultimate demog- uh, ultimate kind of demagoguery, I mean, they tend not to win democratic elections. They tend to come to power uh, through force, and sometimes they do okay in democratic elections, but usually not that not that well. Uh, so, I mean, I think maybe, you know, I've talked myself into a little bit of a, a sense of optimism about uh, demagoguery and how far it can go in a democratic society. Uh, that that's really interesting because maybe this is not an exact map onto demagoguery, but something I'm I'm working on and will probably be out um, will probably be out by the time this podcast is released. Is uh, one of my big ideas is that uh, this kind of conspiratorial demagoguery, either either with like the left wing wokeness, like there there is like all this hidden racism, or like the obvious conspiracies uh, on the right, like anti vax uh, election, whatever. Um, it's basically really good at creating an like a permanent activist class. I think this is something that's going to happen on the right very soon is you'll have all of these people who like really care about anti-vax or really care about the election uh, so much that they're willing to like put all of their all of their time in it, right? I think there's just like this kind of subtle envy and you can see it with the Rufoism as well. There's a subtle envy of uh, liberals ability to get people to like kind of be cultists and to like put all of their like, like, like you talked about in uh, in another article why everything is liberal to get their like cardinal preferences all the way up 
and, and get this like get this like permanent bureaucrat class. Um, you can kind of do the same thing. And there are like anti-vaxxers definitely that I know who are like pr- even like fairly high level like executive positions, right? So if you get this like permanent anti, get this like permanent kind of uh, conspiratorial class or this kind of like demagoguery class, right? If you want to, if you want to compare it towards like the third world, for example, this can actually make a pretty big impact on bureaucracies. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's always been sort of activist classes. I mean, the the you know, there's full time people who are conservative activists who are uh, you know people who work in you know think tanks or journalism that do a kind of activism. Uh, too, um, and that's you know, and you know that could be good or bad. I mean, you could they could be. They, I think it more depends on the cause. I think the left has a lot more. The left is much better at getting their uh, activists sort of intertwined with um, uh, state power, and you know, a lot of like the universities and the education system have people who are self-identified activists who are trying to you know change the world. Um, but you know, yeah, it depends on you know, it sort of depends on the substance of what the activism is. I think whether it's good or bad. Yeah, so actually, we should uh, focus a little bit on why everything is is liberal. Your, uh, I think, still your most famous article, um, and just talk about kind of uh, the, this underlying theory of activists and of of kind of like cardinal preferences. So, um, what are cardinal preferences, and basically, why do they matter? Yeah, so in economics, I mean, cardinal preferences are basically you know how uh, how important you you uh, care about how much you care about things or how much you want something. And ordinal preferences, just you know how much you know whether whether you prefer A to B. It's like very uh, sort of uh, binary, just well you know how you rank things. Um, and then or you know so I, you know if you look at the country like conservatives and liberals, it's pretty um, it's pretty uh, evenly divided. Um, and then when you, but when you look at like how much people care about politics and you measure that by donations, you measure that by activism, um, you measure that by, you know, protesting or signing, uh, petitions or, you know, yelling at people on social media or like caring about politics in your own life. Um, whenever we, when we you know with all these different measures we have, we see liberals care a lot more. And so that matters because, you know, there's an election and sometimes Republicans win and sometimes Democrats win. Uh, but then when we, um, and then, but the real world work, the way the real world works is it's, it's responsive to activists. And I think the biggest, you know, the biggest kind of activists tend to be journalists and academics who uh, earn less money or smart enough people that they earn, they pick jobs where they tend to earn less money or have the, uh, usually, um, uh, have like less of an expected monetary payoff uh, for the careers that they chose. But the, what they're getting out of it is they're getting, uh, they're getting influence and they're getting power and they're getting to sort of engage in self-fulfillment. Uh, so it's the fact that, you know, liberals care more in the general population, liberals go into these, uh, relatively influential and less lucrative fields uh, explains a lot of why they tend to be, um, you know, they the institutions tend to be liberal rather than conservative. Yeah, I think empirically this makes a lot of sense, especially in, uh, in your article, which I'll link in the show notes. But do you have any kind of like, um, any kind of like explanation as to as to why activists matter so much? Well, I mean, I don't think, I don't think it's not, you know, I think it's sort of, it's sort of obvious. I mean, I don't know if it's, you need like a complicated theory for this. I mean, like if you're a corporation and, you know, you, uh, what are, you know, you're deciding whether to adopt some kind of, you know, statement on a public policy issue and you have like a hundred people here who are going to yell at you, who are going to pick at your store, who's going to make, you know, even, or even if you have like your own employees, like, you know, you know, your, your employees are evenly divided, but like half of them are really going to be demoralized and like, not like the corporation, if it goes on, you know, if it doesn't take their position and the other side, you know, doesn't care, um, you're going to respond to the people who, who care 
or if you're like you know you're worried about angry consumers if one side might boycott you um, and you know cover you in the media and you know and and you know try to ruin your reputation and the other side doesn't uh, people you know institutions are naturally going to respond to that so I, you know I don't think that's uh, that's all that surprising. No, but to me, it feels like it's just easier to to... official activists. I mean, it's also more just who wants to speak up and who cares to like do something rather than someone else. Yeah, to me, that still doesn't make sense, though, because why don't the corporations just like fire these people? I I know you talk about like sometimes uh, civil rights law, sorry, protects them on some of these kind of because uh, employers employers don't have absolute power. Employers don't have absolute power. I mean, the the employees have valuable skills. you know, they, they have access to the media, so they can't complain. But, you know, I think this is a, you know, sort of a left, there's sort of a left, you know, this is a, here sort of a leftist assumption that, the, you know, it's sort of asymmetric bargaining where the employer has all the power and the employee doesn't. And I don't think it works that way. I think the employ, employees are competing for jobs to, you know, for different, through different employers and the employers are competing for employees too. So it's more of a symmetrical relationship and both sides sort of have to, you know, if the employer doesn't care, if the employer is completely different, yeah, he'll go make the employees a little happier. I I think this is just, like, not true, though. Um, I, I don't think, for example, like, let's take, like, Apple Apple workers, right? There, there's these kind of, like, brouhaha's over, like, Antonio Garcia Martinez. He wrote a book, and there were kind of, like, stupid, like, spurious accusations of sexism against him um, because of the book that was published for, like, five years uh, before he got hired or something like that. Um, and this, these other stuff about, like, ICE and, like, Israel-Palestine or whatever. Um and th- there just aren't that many people who care. Like the number of people who care about those issues, like just at all, are just so small well, compared to the total number of people. Have you ever been in a meeting where like one person is like really like into something, and like other people yeah. are not? Like it's like that person can have a big influence if they like really. Yeah, really you just care fire them. them. No, you don't. I mean, you don't fire. You don't fire them because well, first of all, there's not just one. I mean, there's there's probably at least at least a few. Um, yeah, but it's such a small percentage. Like especially for a larger company, it's like it's like this is not significant. I mean, it's significant. It depends on how much they care. Like, okay, like if, you know, 5% of your workforce is going to become less productive or like leak things about you to the media or like, uh, you know, maybe go work somewhere else and find the other, you know, it's like, even if they, even if they're like, all they're going to do is, you know, you're going to fire them, you know, you're, you're, you're restricting the field of employees you can hire, right? If like 10% of these people and maybe they're disproportionately, you know, good employees or, or not, um, you know, if you're just going to say, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not, I'm going to fire 10% of people who care about a lot about politics. And I probably think it's probably like, you know, more than 10% at this point. I mean, there was one of these uh, corporations, I forget which one. Um, Wait, no, a, I don't think this is like anywhere close, but sorry, go well, ahead. Basecamp, like, how many, what, do you remember Basecamp? So the, 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 there was a, they, there was some brouhaha about the corporation, like the, the leadership didn't want people to be uh too woke. And then like, you know, a huge portion quit of the workforce. It wasn't a huge corporation, but it was, you know, it was like, yeah, it was like, it was like 60 people, right. Who in total, like at the corporation. Yeah. Out of, well, I mean, that shows you percentage wise, right. That's, that's tons. And, yeah, like, and the thing is they weren't just like firing people. They were saying like, Oh, we're going to give you like this, this like very nice benefits package. I, like, yeah. Well, why did they I, have to give them I think that is definitely a super inflated number. Uh, okay. I mean, if it was, tw- if it was like inflated by, well, I mean, there's so much going on here. Why are they, why do they feel the need to give them this ever? No, because the media, I mean, yeah. the media is there too. And the media is going to okay, like, yeah, try to destroy them. Civil rights law is going to be there. So, I mean, I, I think there's a, uh, there's a natural th- uh, thing to bend towards people who care more. 
Um, and then there's also the media, there's also civil rights law. So, you know, there's a sort of a perfect storm. Uh, Gabe Rossman, uh, my friend, uh, said uh, uh, civil rights law is sort of like a force amplifier for these people. And I think that's right. Yeah, I'm trying to get him on as well. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he'll go on. He's a nice guy. We'll talk to you. Cool. Is Amy Chua going to go on? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I've I, I've sent her like one email, uh, but uh, probably not at this point. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> well, if she replies to if she replies to my like third follow up, then maybe. But I think I'm like I, I think I'm done at trying to yeah. to get and her. Try to build point. yourself up first, I think, before you go for the big people, because I'll let them see. Oh, he's got other important people on. You know, he's going to go on because people are busy, and so they use like quick. You know, uh, you know, they use sort of a quick heuristics to see whether they should, you know they should uh, bother with something or not. Yeah, actually, I want to I want to get your your take on this, because um, basically, you know, like the thousand thousand true fan model, right? Basically, you have all of these kind of like micro creators who are famous towards like a small number of people, but are like very famous towards them. Um, I, I think you could count me in this category. You're probably um, you're probably past that point. At what's this what's point. the theory? I'm sorry. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what you Oh. Okay, so like a thousand true fans, basically like a, a content creator or something like that, like a writer or YouTuber or whatever, can sustain themselves based on like a thousand people who care, right? If you have like a thousand people who are paying you like $5 on your Substack, I guess I'm not quite there, right? But you, if you have that, you don't really need to be famous towards like that many more people. Because like um, $5 a month times 12 months times a thousand people, that's $60,000 a year. That's a pretty, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a pretty good living, um, right. even though you're not like super famous, right? You're not like a real celebrity. Um, and something that I think I've noticed is that like the long tail of left-wing people is way worse than the long tail of right-wing people. Like there are some pretty obscure, uh, right-wing people who just have like incredibly unique insights. Um, and there are some like kind of, uh, people who, who will, um, who will like, uh, I get on these podcasts and stuff who like literally no one has heard of. And it's like a non-zero, it's a non-zero chance that these people are um, really kind of amazing. But I think like all, I think like there's an equivalent number of good left-wing people, insightful left-wing people, but they're all like famous and institutionalized, right? They're like Matt Iglesias, Ezra Klein, David Shore. Um, I, I guess like Freddie DeBoer isn't institutionalized, but he's also like super famous. Um, and I, and I do a lot, I actually spend a lot of time looking at these like left, left wing circles, finding like smaller creators to kind of, uh, kind of reach out to. And, uh, I just can't find that many, (laughs) like even just like saying things that are like new, not necessarily that I agree with or any kind of, I mean, there could always be bias, but I think I've tried my best to like de-bias myself and just judge based on like, based on like. Maybe left-wing ideas are just wrong and stupid. And maybe that's why, like, you know, there are many people who can, you know, say things that are interesting and left-wing. You know, I think... Yeah, but, like, okay, there's, like, big ideas in, like, like the right-wing that are wrong and stupid as well, right? Like, the election stuff. Yeah, but, right, and you don't want to talk to those people either, right? You want to talk to smart people with insights and maybe in, like, you know, like, left-wing orthodoxy now is blank slateism, right? That there's no differences between men and women or social class. Like, one group is, like, richer than the other. It must be because of, you know, uh, something, you know, society did. I mean, maybe these ideas are just not true. So people who have a tendency to accept ideas that are not true on false premises uh, might not, you know, have great insights into things. 
Yeah, this is actually kind of related to something I, I wrote a while ago um, that I think you read called like, um, uh, it's the midwit stupid, um, which is basically like my reply to your like liberals read conservatives watch TV thing, yeah. which is like basically like the midwit meme, right? Or like maybe a slightly shifted midwit meme. The the conservatives are kind of made up of a, a, of a constellation of like, of like weird heterod- heterodox people. Um, and, and then like a lot of like, a lot of like very like tribal like like tv watchers basically and then uh and then the left wing is made up of like made up of like all of the people in like the middle or like mid middle to higher but not that exceptional kind of range obviously there are exceptions but like i don't know what do you think about that uh you know i think the you know the midwit i mean the midwit theory of um i I think yeah i did i think i did uh read that and i think you're I think you're right. I think that's driving force on the left right now is sort of uh, like the HR, you know, school teacher class. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think I do think it's not like the professors at Harvard uh, that are like trickling down. I think it's really you know people like Robin DiAngelo have like a lot more influence uh, than um, you know like New York Times op ed. Have that much influence? Like I I don't know this. I don't no, know she this had like one. Of, she had the I think like the one of the best selling or the best selling book of like the last few years, um, and you know whatever nonfiction or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, she's, she's, a lot of pe- and she's mandated, you know, mandated in corporations and like everyone, you know, and everyone you see on Twitter, even the left wing people that I see, like, you know, think she's a joke. Uh, but no, she has, you know, yeah. popular appeal. A lot of you know, people, a lot of HR departments are looking at this and saying, this makes sense. Let's, let's make everyone read it. Um, and let's have, you know, trainings on that basis. Uh, so yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're right. I think that, I think a lot of the, what's going on, I think a lot of, our politics is driven by, you know, not very smart, but like, you know, the most important thing is, um, you know, sort of emotionally uh, committed or at least emotionally, you know, fragile and aggressive uh, people. And then a lot of the, you know, the ideologies we uh, talk about or a lot of the policies we justify are sort of post hoc rationalizations for, uh, you know, getting women to stop crying or getting you know people not to burn down, the, you know, buildings anymore. I, I think there's a lot of that. There's there's something that that doesn't quite sit right with me about that, and I don't I don't quite know what it is. I th- I think it might just be like it might just be like why are we even like putting up with these people, right? Like those I guess people, maybe most people don't care, and most people maybe. are indifferent, and like they just you know they don't want to see a woman cry. They're not like you. You you seem to care about truth and logic, and you know most people don't care about those things. Um. Yeah, I. I don't really. It have, wouldn't like, work on you. It doesn't work on me. I mean, explanation, but even know, like, real. yeah, even like the corporate situation, though. I think like a lot of these corporations are like reasonably smart people. There, right? I, I guess that's not the same as caring. Well, I think about I think they're making smart. I think they're making smart decisions here individually. I mean, I think that I think that giving in to woke mobs, yeah, I think true. makes sense. That's right. I, you know, I think there's uh, for all the reasons we talked about before. Yeah, it's kind of this. I don't know. Maybe, maybe in software it's a bit different, and that's that's also why you're seeing like more people standing up to that, right? Whether it's the Substack folks, whether it's like Shopify, whether it's like Coinbase, all these companies that are saying like um, we, we're basically just going to enforce enforce being a non political company, and maybe they're a bit more generous with their severance packages. Maybe they just have the money, right? Um, Maybe it's maybe it's different if you're trying to actually do something, right? Maybe if you're if you're like the more real your company is, the more the, the more this matters. Or sorry, the more like the more like getting rid of these people matters. Do you, do you think that's true? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at, yeah, I think that's true. I think a lot of, you know, things are, you know, there's corporations that are just, you know, you know, there are PR firms, there are just journalism and, you know, you're not building a, a, a bridge or, or something. So yeah, these, you know, these attract different kinds of people and you have, you know, different, it attracts different kinds of people. They have different uh, incentives and they have different way of thinking about the world. So it makes sense. The institutions sort of, depending on what they're building and what they're doing, are going to have different sort of politics or engagement with politics. Yeah. And do you think we're ever going to get like a time in like, in like 20 years where this kind of situation flips, like Rufoism just wins and then we're, <laughs> we're, we're dealing with the exact same thing, but, but like from the right wing? Uh, it's hard. It's really hard to uh, imagine. I think we, the best we can hope for is a, um, you know, because that would require such a turnaround. I, you know, I think we can, I think one of the best things we can hope for in this sense is a, uh, uh, you know, going after the civil rights laws, changing things, um, having new corporations and new businesses sprout up. And I think they'd be more apolitical because I don't think it's going to, I don't think women's tears are going away. Like, I don't think you can like offend. Yeah, women. no, I think the bigger problem is that you're just going to replace it with, you're going to replace like left-wing moral panics with like right-wing like moral women, panics. Right-wing women's, no, but right-wing women's, te- right-wing women who cry are at home. And caring about their children and schools, so maybe the schools <laughs> and the ones who are in corporate offices are left wing women. Uh, so if women, if everything is just women, you know, women. wait, is this true? Like, is there like a breakdown of? Oh, you think it's? You th- do you do you need data to think that uh, uh, cons- women who get married and have children are more conservative than single women who have careers? Well, yeah, th- there is data, yes, but you shouldn't need data for that. That's a basic background fact. Okay, point. that's fair. That's fair. I guess like. I, I still think there there is like a remnant there is like a remnant activist class right and actually um, I, I want to put a pin on like the feminization framing because I don't think it's like exactly right um, but just with regards to activists in general I think like if you get like a body of conservative activists who are just just like more willing to do this stuff and kind of maybe like slightly more socially accepted you kind of like get a flip and they're they're the more socially accepted ones. Then, then I think you will have the same kind of like censorship. And this is like a big reason why I'm like not more right wing is I think that they're kind of like, they're kind of willing to pull like the same jackass stunts as people on the left. Well, I think they are. I think they are. And so if you look at things like the anti-BDS laws or the, for uh, Israel, right? I mean, they're, I think they're happy yeah. to shut down speech when they, uh, when they can. Um, I think the gender thing is huge. Again, I will go back to that. Um, and, you know, you could, I mean, you could imagine... I mean, you you know, I, and I think that social conservatism is sort of uh, outnumbered here by the fact by women's representation in, uh, you know, in, in corporate in corporate and, and public life, uh, left wing women's representation and right wing women uh, being more uh, concerned with sort of personal things and and family. I, I think there's been a social change. You know, it's hard it's hard to predict, but I think there's been a social change uh, here, and you know, and I mean, it's it's difficult. You know, just just to imagine. Uh, politically neutral institutions is like a big enough jump from where we are right now that it's like, you know, it's like to imagine like that they're, you know, right wing and, you know, crazy and, uh, and having these moral panics and shutting people down, you know, like society doesn't change that fast. So like, you know, maybe a hundred years, who knows, but like 20 years, like, no, I don't think it's enough time for things to flip to that extreme extent. Yeah. But I guess, I, I guess like in, in the framework of like someone who is actually wanting to change these things, right. And, and by someone, I mean me, um, who's actually wanting to change these things. I, I, I don't want to just like, just like flip the polarity on these things, right. I want to kind of like navigate to a place where you, you don't have, or like the, these moral panics are like much weaker. Right. Um, 
Well, I, mean, I, I just don't think about it is like, like right now. One way to think about it is right now liberals have power and conservatives don't. So like conservative moral panics are less, you know, maybe uh, 50 years from now it'll be different, but conservative moral panics are less likely to be, you know, sort of totalitarian. And, you know, you also have to think about like the direction of the moral panic, like, you know, become like too pro-criminal or like too, too anti-crime. Like, I think these are like the directions of moral panics. I think being, you know, too far in the direction of wanting to stop crime is usually better than too far in the direction of like wanting to stop police, which I think is, you know, sort of a left-wing, uh, uh, left-wing, um, moral panic. So yeah, you know, there's ways to think about, think about these things and sort of try to calibrate, uh, how you get a perfect world where you have no moral panics and, you know, everyone is rational is probably not in the cards. I think it's not in the cards whether most people become rational, but it's it's in the cards whether the irrational people are subjugated under the rational people, basically. Like one idea I had when I was talking with Steve Shu is just like, sh- should we like force journalists to like take stats classes and do well in them, <laughs> right? Yeah, that'd be great. I, I'm not sure I, I that would solve that. the problem, but I think it would make it better. Yes, you would have a, you would have a disparate impact, um, and then you'd have to deal with civil rights law. Yes, but yeah, we you should you should you should repeal those too. So yeah, great idea. I'm, I'm fine with that. Wait, would that actually run into civil rights law? In oh, the US? of course. Are you crazy? Of course. No, you guys you should. Uh, I'll be doing more on this. Yes, this is like the sort of prototypical thing that would run into civil rights, like a written test of like mathematical ability. That's like you know that's the easiest possible case of something that you can't do. But like, or like, you can just say like, okay, we're going to get all, okay, maybe this is also unrealistic, but like if universities just wanted to say like, if you want to graduate with like a journalism degree or with like these other well, degrees, no, see, so that's different. So universities laws. can do what they want. See, so civil rights law is enforced by a bunch of left-wing bureaucrats and they like universities and they dislike IQ tests. So when it comes to IQ <laughs> tests or anything written uh, paper test that's easy and simple and differentiates people, then it's, uh, it's a problem for disparate impact. Uh, by the time this comes out, there, there's a conversation with Gail Herriot, H-E-R-I-O-T on the CSBI podcast um, that I'm you know, have uh, going to have a transcript of on my uh, website by the time people listen to, to this podcast right now. Um, but, you know, the people who uh, who uh, um, to enforce civil rights. Uh, quick clarification. Uh, is this on uh, Richard Hanania or, yes. or Richard, CSPI? Well, CSPI um, podcast, so if you want the podcast. But, it, but the transcript is on my substack, richardhanania.substack.com. Not today, but like by the time people listen to this podcast, uh, it'll be it'll be there. Um, uh, but, you know, left-wing people enforce civil rights law and they like universities. And so therefore, university, you know, requiring a college degree has a disparate impact, but it's never counted as a uh, disparate impact because they basically like universities and they dislike uh, the idea of IQ. Yeah, I think that makes sense. But like, I think with regards to stats, it's like, this is actually something that like other mathematicians dunk on, dunk on like stats majors for is, is there's a lot of just like general knowledge stuff. And like, it's just like so obviously directly relevant. Like you're reporting on yeah. statistics. No, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, for hiring, yeah, for hiring, I mean, you have to, you know, you have to show it's business necessity. Like, and so like it's controversial oh. what that means. Um, and you know, it's arbitrary too. Like if you anger women by doing this, like then they start complaining about other things. And so much of civil rights law is sort of ambiguous and prone to interpretation that if they get mad at you for one thing and it's sort of, um, you know, technically you can get away with it, uh, you know, you, they can come after you for a hundred different things. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just terrible. So this is uh, why it constitutes my work is just how terrible civil rights laws are for, for freedom, for progress, uh, for human advancement. Yeah, and I and I think we want to be like really clear because a big part of my audience is like worldwide and in like Canada and other places uh, as well. I think this is actually kind of why like 
um, there's like some woke stuff that that's in Canada, but in general, it's more like it's more like economic and it's more like um, it, it's more like climate stuff uh, because Canada does have this. And this goes to like Asians being swing voters as well. Canada does this ha- have this like long-standing narrative of being like super multicultural and super kind of like colorblind. Um, and and there, there were like very big fights over this with regards to like Quebec separatism as well, like the, this like national narrative of being like one country. Um, but American civil rights laws are quite different. They're, they're, they are uh, not colorblind at all. They're like kind of the opposite. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if um, Canadian, you know, wokeness is colorblind. I mean, they have these, you know, first nations. Yeah. There's like still, this. it's just like less, or it's less politically popular or I guess wokeness is politically unpopular like, in the US yeah. as well, de- but like, Canadians are better at staying away from it. That's what I should say. Canadian politicians are better at staying away from it. Yeah, it's like not not a lot of the discourse. There's still like corporate stuff, but it's like they're they're kind of doing what like Republicans in the U.S. are doing. Uh, so Canada, you, you I don't know if they still have the um, uh, the uh, hate speech regulations, like they call it the Human Rights Commission, or they can drag you before. I don't know. If, I, I don't know if they they were talking. There were stocks of repealing that. I don't know if they ever did. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So there was like a Canada. bunch of controversial internet regulation uh right now it's kind of still it's kind of still like in the process and uh there's a bit of a public backlash to it so um i don't know it could go either way yeah well it's interesting you think canada is less woke than the u.s definitely woke in different ways at least yeah but they're they're like a lot more left-wing on economics and a lot more uh a lot more like restrictionist on covid for example I, i think they're like easing up now but like beforehand certainly right um, I think this is actually a good time to push push back on the feminization framing because, like, I think politically it just alienates like half of the population a little bit, um, and also I think it kind of like misses the misses the main point, right? I, I think it's actually like both better both in framing and in terms of like finding accuracy to just call it like neuroticism. Oh, I don't. I, because I, I think yeah, I don't, agree. I, don't agree. I actually don't agree. I don't agree that. I, well, I disagree with both points, but go ahead. Uh, okay, actually, I want to I want to hear your pushback. Okay, so why is it? So the idea that it alienates half the population, like, uh, no, I think that um, I think that a majority of women, at least you know, before, I don't know if it's still this case, don't don't call themselves uh, feminists. I think that uh, what basically sort of liberals, uh, their ideal of you know womanhood and what women should be, uh, I don't think has you know popular mass support. I think it has support with sort of uh, a certain kind of woman that you know, just like you know, uh, just like you know, uh, with um, any identity group, it tends to be a very small uh, group that you know claims to speak to speak for them and i think it's like different even from uh, like minority racial groups in the sense that uh the women who become activists are so atypical uh for their sex that they really don't uh represent uh women so i don't think it's actually uh uh i don't think it's actually bad politics necessarily but yeah go ahead you can uh respond or go on with the uh, other point we can talk about the other point later but like staying on this one i, I think it's like not necessarily like the policies that you would do to like reverse this or like the problem itself, but it's just kind of like the framing, right? Like, uh, no, let I me know if, also if you think this is like a waste of time uh, to talk about, but like, uh, I think like the framing of, for example, like women's tears, like, I-, I think if you're just like a woman and you hear that, right, you're just like not going to like that. It-, it doesn't matter what the underlying point is. Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes people, I mean, I, I-, I don't, I don't disagree that it, you know, it can be, alienating to some people um it's a way to understand it's a way to understand but there are you know there are payoffs too there are payoffs in seeing the world accurately 
um, there are payoffs and sort of, uh, you know, in uh, like helping men understand what has, uh, what has gone wrong um, in society. Um, and, you know, if you don't, I think if you don't deal honestly, I don't think you have much of a, I think this is such a big and important factor that I think if you don't sort of, if you're unable to see it or deal honest, honestly with it, um, it's going to, you know, have, you're going to have major problems in trying to do anything about it. Okay, so that that gets to the, that gets like directly to the second point, mm-hmm. right? Which is that my my, uh, my argument is that it's better to frame it as like neuroticism, um, because I think people like like it's a it, it's kind of a trait, and there's like pathological versions of it that are like but nobody cares illness, about. But this is the this is my argument in the article. Nobody cares about neurotic men. If men come to you and start crying in a classroom, people are just disgusted. They say, "Get out!" You know, like they don't have sympathy to like change the you know bureaucratic structures of a university or a corporation. If women cry, men give up. It has to be women's tears. It's not a it's not a neutral sort of uh, it's not a neutral thing. Now you could just say like, you know, we're just gonna deal with everyone crying and, you know, ban that, but that's going to have such a disparate impact on women that it's going to be like, oh, wait a minute, you're excluding all women from like the conversation. Like, okay, like, are the people that you're excluding are disproportionately women by, you know, a huge, uh, a huge percentage. Um, so like, you know, you, you need to, you know, you need to sort of have a response to that. Yeah. I'll, I think I'll concede on the crying point. I think that's, that is true. That is true. So I guess like women's tears, like maybe like e- even if I th- I think it's like bad messaging, like it, it, it might it's be, a very literal might, theory. Like, it, it, this is not a this is not really a metaphor. <laughs> this is women cry. Yeah, institutions <laughs> do stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know though. I think like you can you can. It's it, it's not just this. It's kind of like there's this kind of thing in like startup culture where you will just like cold call cold call people and like ask them to like invest in your company, right? And, and like sometimes this works. Because people just kind of like, or like investing is a bit different because like there's there's kind of like a payoff for you. But even if you just like randomly ask people for favors, right? A lot of people will say yes, right? And it doesn't matter too much, I think, if you're a man or a woman in this in, in this frame. And with regards to a lot of how like the activism works, I think it is kind of that, right? It, it's kind of like you you just ask, and a lot of the time people say yes. And and I don't think it's necessarily if you're if you're a man or a woman, right? Sometimes, yeah. There's different. I mean, there's different things, right? Just asking. You know, just sort of, you know, writing a letter or something that maybe doesn't. Yeah, we're like, we're like, we demand, we we demand X. We are like signing a petition. We're yeah. like, yeah, you know, the typical stuff. Like, yeah, I, I guess do. some of it is gender coded, but not yeah. all of no, it. Sex, yeah, sex can be less salient in those circumstances. I think, like, you know, that article was really thinking a lot about universities and thinking a lot about like public debate, and so like journalists on twitter or like universities like shutting you know students at universities shouting down students that's like personal stuff like so you look at the stuff of like women uh you know like taylor lorenz on twitter oh you know like nobody would take this seriously from a man you know there's so much hate out there you know it's it's like it drives calls i don't think most people take it seriously from lorenz like she's obviously a fraud I think that um, the people you follow on Twitter probably don't. I mean, I think she gets on MSNBC and they take her very seriously. And like the people who, you know, the the people who watch MSNBC, you know, and and uh, um, take this stuff and follow, you know, RussiaGate and you know, get into the current thing. I think those people do take it seriously. Um, and so, um, and yeah, and then when you get to universities, which so much of the university stuff is like personal people complaining about feelings, people getting complaining about getting hurt. This is so, this is such a gender issue. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a gender issue, you know, as much as like, uh, you know, um, you know, as much as like professional football, it's like a male thing. I mean, it, it is just so extremely like such a sex issue that it's like crazy that we don't talk about it. We talk about quote unquote, these millennials or quote unquote, these college kids. Uh, no, it, it's, it's, uh, you're, you're missing a lot if you, if you look at it that way. 
Yeah, I, I think I think the differentiation is very strong when it comes to, like you said, the impact. I, I think you have a, obviously it's still correlated, but I think like the difference isn't that big in terms of like who is neurotic and who is like doing these like overreactions and like the safetyism. But I think when, when it does, you, you are right for like when it comes to like the reaction, um, people, people are more reactive to when, yeah. uh, when women do this than when men do this. Um, I, I guess like the, the counter framing is kind of the, um, the Lenore Skenazy, Jean Twenge, like Gen Z is just like suffering from a lot of anxiety disorders thing. Right. I'm sure they um, do. I mean, I'm sure that's, that's, you know, I'm sure that's part yeah, of it. Yeah. Like too. you can, you can argue like, okay, here's the, here's the counter argument. I think is that this has always kind of been a thing. It's just that we've kind of like d- turned up the dial on neuroticism for both sexes in like the last like 15 years ish. Right. And that's what's made the difference. I I, I don't think we've necessarily or, okay. Actually, like I, I'm saying this now, and I kind of feel like it's it's like false. You you can just like tear it down if you want. But like, why why is that not like the major cause? And and like, do you think we've kind of like significantly changed in how we react to uh, how we react to? Like, I'm sorry, whoa, what is the major cause? Like that, that kind of phrasing. Um. So so like the counter argument is that like the main thing that's changed is that like just like generationally. Um, my generation has just gotten much more neurotic. Zoomers have just gotten much more neurotic. And um, that's the main difference in, instead of like, we've just become more favorable towards these kind of like, uh, these kind of like quote unquote, like women's tears kind of tactics. Well, I think women, I think there's, you know, a lot. Yeah. I mean, there's many ways, you know, to understand a cultural change, you know, there's a lot of ways to understand it. So yes, I think you need the neuro. You think you, I think you need the neuroticism. I think people are n- more neurotic. Uh, I think the, you know, the role of quote unquote mental health as like sort of an ideology as like a bureaucrat bureaucratized thing. Uh, Freddie DeBoer uh, has, you know, something uh, very well good. He uh, wrote about this uh, recently. I think, you know, this is a, this is a major problem. You know, there's sort of the, you know, and there's sort of a, um, there's sort of a permeable, uh, permeability between like uh identities that are like identity politics identities like lgbtq and my psychiatric diagnoses that people are diagnosing themselves with you know why well, autistic so you know there's a the, uh, there's a um there's a yeah person, so like the Tourette's thing yeah there's a person from reddit that like uh uh Freddie quotes who says, you know, these kids these days they'll, they'll define themselves as, you know, polyamorous and autistic and like ADHD, you know, and trans and you know whatever. So it's like it's like it's there's almost you know they're almost the same thing. They're blending together uh, the mental health and the and the politics stuff. Um, I think that's right. Um, you know, women's tears don't work if you know if women are not you know uh, highly represented in major institutions. So you need that. You need like to set the stage in like, you know, a way that like the idea that this, you know, there's something wrong with the old way of doing things. So you need like some kind of critique of like the old system that, you know, uh, and there you need like political correctness and you need social desirability bias. And yeah, you need, you need the young people to be a little bit uh, crazy. You know, society's gone crazy in a very uh, specific way and there's a lot that goes into it. So the last issue that I really want to talk about is the is the nature of expertise and credentialing. So you you read this article called uh, Tetlock and the Taliban about basically how we have these we have these kind of like prestige structures that that say like oh these people are experts, but in a, in a lot of these cases these experts are not really good at um, at doing the thing they claim to be experts in. So do you want to elaborate on that? 
yeah, I mean, people are, you know, they get called experts in public health or they get called experts in something. And, you know, often that means that they went to a school and they got a degree and they got an advanced degree, a PhD often. And then they, you know, they're often professors. Uh, so that means how do they become professors? It doesn't mean that they necessarily you know, have any proven track record of predicting things. They wrote a bunch of articles that were peer reviewed. I think they wrote a dissertation that somebody said, okay, this is plausible. And then they wrote um, a bunch of articles um, and publications. And these were judged by other people. There, there wasn't necessarily any kind of track record of being able to explain the world. There's no, they never got a plane off the ground. They never even showed, you know, forecasting skills. And then at the end of the day, we say, okay, this person's written a lot about epidemiology or gender or, uh, or crime or whatever, you know, this is an expert. And, you know, this system is not, you know, there, there, there's not the mechanism here um, to, you know, there's not the mechanism here that would make you think that these people, uh, the people that we call experts are necessarily, uh, do necessarily um, understand the world better than the rest of us. So when Tedlock, um, you know, and uh, you know, a few others have done research on this, they've shown that amateurs can often, you know, at least equal, uh, you know, sometimes beat uh, the experts. And if that's true, then, you know, just as the fact that someone has a degree or something, it's something a professor or so, uh, something, you might want, you might, you know, they might have more domain-specific knowledge, but domain-specific knowledge is not necessarily the most relevant knowledge or, or, the, or uh, an ability to put together that knowledge in a way that leads to a more accurate understanding of the world. Uh, so this is, you know, this is the idea behind sort of a lot of modern expertise just being completely fake. Yeah, and I think we do need to like really delineate there, right? Because like I think we can be pretty calm, uh, confident that like the experts in like in in like um, rocket engineering yes. are like actually experts, while the while the experts in like um, in like IR. I mean, like I guess maybe you're one of those experts. No, no, but, that's like, fine. You can use IR. Um, sorry. No, you can you can you can define IR. You can you can put you can put IR, yeah, can put IR, but, but, IR like, in that There are other areas like IR that are uh, let, let's say have like a much shoddier track record. Yeah, no, unquestionably, you're right. Yeah, I mean, uh, the rocket scientists, um, even some things like, you know, string theory, like things that are, there's some things you know, like that are not really testable in, in physics, but, you know, the math, I think, is a, um, you know, is a good uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the math is, um, yeah, I should probably, probably shouldn't say too much of that. I'll stick to the hard sciences just for, uh, uh, just for simplicity's sake, like things that are, have like practical implications. Like, yes, you know, the bridge either collapses or it doesn't. The rocket goes to the moon or it doesn't. The plane gets off the, you know, flies or it doesn't. You know, the, the vaccine works or it doesn't. Um, yeah, that that's reality. Now, like you have like, uh, uh, you know, you have like Yeah, let's get to the blurry areas, right? Yeah. So you have a criminologist. I mean, often they will like, they'll recommend something. People will listen to them. It'll, you know, it'll go, sometimes it might go right. Sometimes it just goes terribly, but no one is keeping track um and you know like there's no there's no um you know there's people in like international relations who you could look at who've been wrong got time and time again or criminology or epidemiology or something and you can't find like you know rocket scientists who have like you know uh who've seen like you know have blown up like rocket after rocket and never accomplished uh anything um so yeah this this is a clear difference i was focusing mostly on uh the social sciences where yeah, expertise is in, you know, I think it's in, I think it's sort of a, it's a crisis. It was probably always fake, um, but it's much worse now. I think it's much worse because there's been a proliferation of 
ex, you know, so-called experts. Like I'll hear stuff like, oh, Will Smith sl- slapped Chris Rock. You know, experts say <laughs> that could have been very, like expert in what? You know, people watching <laughs> yeah. TV and watching, you know, two uh, celebrities fight. Like, you know, that's, there's, no, there's no expert in that. Uh, but there's more people going to college. Uh, you know, the, the, the uh, more proliferation of narrow fields and, you know, the IQ, sort of the average IQ of who gets called an expert and um, who is a, um, you know, who's a professor and who's, you know, speaking about public issues um, and from an authoritative way that's declining. So I think it's probably getting worse. Yeah. And I mean, like this is returning to maybe the first thing we talked about, but I think there's also kind of an overreaction on the, on the right wing side where they're just like, they're just like, Oh, some of these experts must be wrong. Maybe, maybe all of them are maybe like the, maybe like the vaccine is, is like fake or whatever. And, and like, yeah. I think neither of us, I feel feel bad for those people because, you know, I think the vaccines, you know, the experts are right. But, you know, the epidemiologists and the same people who like the vaccines are pretty much wrong on um, uh, most other things. So, like, you know, how can how can a normal person know? It's very it's very hard. Yeah. Do do you have any tips on uh, helping us differentiate? Um, you know, I, when the, the issue is important enough, like the vaccines, which we're going to, you know, we gave to, you know, almost everybody in society, uh, you can just look at the data yourself. I think that's, that's something that's important enough to, uh, look at, um, you know, there's, uh, yeah, there, there's different kinds of heuristics. I mean, I would be careful about people who don't even pretend to do cost benefit analysis. You know, if somebody says I want to do X, but they don't like tell you like how it's, you know, uh, you know what the costs are of X, but they only tell you the benefits. I mean, that's. Uh, that is suspicious. I think complicated statistical uh, methods um, that I think are generally most of the time almost always useless. I think Philippe's uh, uh, stuff on them, Philippe Lemoyne, uh, his uh, posts on COVID-19, um, I think do a good job of making that argument um, about epidemiology. Um, uh, yeah, and you know, and I think you have to trust certain uh, communities and individuals with the right priors and those with not. So if someone is something or a, a school of thought or an ideology is based on blank slateism. I mean, that's that's false. Um, if people are, you know, skeptical of markets, I think that's, you know, a good, probably a good red flag that they're not very rational in their thinking. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is something that's worth thinking about. I, I, I think that, you know, I just did an interview actually that again, it'll be probably be up by the time uh, this is uh, this is released where I do talk about this a little bit and it's probably something that's worth uh, building more uh, building more upon. Yeah, and I, I do want to push back on, I think, like, or not push back necessarily, but like delineate further in this category. Uh, be, I, I don't think like what uh, Philippe is doing is wrong or what you're doing is wrong, but I think e- this kind of like philosophy of science stuff, there are people who like do that, uh, who who say like, oh, these assumptions are silly, who are like, who are like really doing it. I don't, actually, I don't want to say in bad faith, but I just want to say like, I disagree with them. I think what they're doing is like kind of silly like the best example is like the Weinsteins, right? Like uh, Brett and Eric Weinstein, like they'll, they'll do like this philosophy of science stuff. And then like, I think the, the, the conversation that like best illustrated this to me was like, Eric was talking with, uh, was talking with like Tyler Cowen and he's talking about how like inflation is fake, right? Eric Weinstein thinks like inflation is fake basically, or not that it, it isn't happening, but like the measures of inflation are like completely wrong. And then like Tyler just keeps asking him like, how much do you think it's wrong by? Like, like, what do we do? Like, how do we like uh, adjust? What do you do to make money off of this? Or like all of these kind of like questions of like, h- how wrong could this like actually be? Right. And Eric just like doesn't answer. He just like completely dodges the question every single time. And I think this is like the, the like the bad faith um, version of this, right? Where you're like, you're, where you're like, these assumptions are bad, 
but you don't really kind of create a better way or you don't even prove that they're like bad in an impactful way. Like, I don't think the inflation index, like maybe it's off by something, but I don't think it's like that off, right? Uh, and so I think a lot of people do this kind of like philosophy of science stuff and they're just kind of like, they're, they're just kind of like doing sophistry. Uh, yeah. I, I think... and, and to be to be clear, I don't think like Philippe is doing this and I don't mm-hmm. think you're doing this, but like, I think this is a problem that we need to be like more vigilant of. Uh, yeah, I, I think I agree with that. Yeah. How would you make money off of this or what kind of bet would you make is often a very good um, way to sort of sift through, um, you know, who's, who's credible here and who's not. Now, you know, sometimes I think the radical skepticism could make sense. Like, like, I think, you know, for the macroeconomic stuff, like, I don't know enough about it, but I, I'm, I'm inherently skeptical. I think if I looked into it, uh, I suspect that I would be, I would find a lot where I'd say, oh, you know, I don't even know how to make money off of this. I just think the way they're measuring and what they're doing this is wrong. Now, I should probably actually, now that I think about it, I should probably find a way to make some money off that uncertain, uh, off that uncertainty. <laughs> but maybe that market, the market does factor it. Maybe the academic economists say one thing and the market actually is much smarter than them. And there's no, and you're just verbalizing what the market already knows. Maybe, maybe, uh, I don't know. Uh, but you are, you know, you're smart to, to sort of, uh, draw the limits of what we mean when we say expertise is fake or science is fake, which is fun to say because it's like, you know, it starts a conversation. (laughs) Um, But yes, it's more complicated and it's good to get into the details. Yeah. I think like just the way I think of the world is just that I kind of visualize error bars with all of my statements. And I realized that when you like compound these error bars together, they become very big error bars. And so like, smart guy. Yes. I I think that's like, if you do that, you, you get a way of questioning the mainstream, but also being able to like reasonably look at mainstream things and just say like, these things are like, there's a, there's a chance that these things are wrong but also like most things are are like very wrong right and these are like less wrong and and i think like the ability to to just do that is very important either like with mainstream stuff or with like non-mainstream stuff to just say like eh, this is kind of sketchy but also like everything else is more sketchy yeah well less wrong i mean yeah this sounds like you're yeah, and i should return the compliment because i think you're also very good at this Oh, well, thank you. That's that's yeah. That's very nice of you. I I agree with all of that. That that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, the last the last question of the show is uh, always this: you can choose one of the two or both. Um, what is something in the world that you think is too ordered and needs more chaos, or what is something in the show, or sorry, something in the world um, that you think is too chaotic and needs more order? Uh, yeah, I mean, I want to, I want to not say something that's too obvious. I mean, I think that labor markets need more uh, chaos and they're too orderly. So that's part of why I think civil rights law has led to uh, standardization. I don't like uh, labor unions and I don't like any kinds of government regulations. I think labor markets need to be chaotic because markets need to be chaotic because we all have no knowledge or ability to engage in central planning. And that's, you know, the the markets are the way we know how to aggregate uh, human uh, preferences. Um, Is there something less uh obvious um i can i could say um i think i you know i, th- I mean I think it's obvious because it's true right what's that or like i disagree with some of well, that it's obvious but... that i would say that i guess it's obvious that i would say that given my given well given this conversation given what i've been saying before so i don't think it's that obvious you're right um is there something you know is there something like that i haven't talked about before or i haven't thought of uh that can uh uh that can um benefit 
uh, from more chaos. I think people's individual lives actually, like, I think you should experiment. I think people don't experiment enough. Like people are like, Oh, Oh yeah, totally. Uh, especially with my generation, this is just awful. Yeah. People are just kind of like looking for scripts and like all these scripts are bad. Yeah. Well, people are like, you know, well, what diet works? Let me look at the literature. Let me, it's like, you, you know what? You have enough time in your life to try every diet imaginable, right? You could take a year and do <laughs> like, you know, what, what keeps you from eating too much? You could do like three weeks of each diet and see what works for yourself. Like sleep, like people say, how many sleep? But, you know, try a lot of sleep and try a little sleep and, you know, see, see how your life works. Drugs too. I mean, it's good to, you know, it's good to try things. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think I, I'm a big, big believer in experimentation in people's lives. I think you shouldn't like people either rely on conformity or people who are, you know, even people who are, you know, sometimes smarter, they, they tend to, you know, try to say, oh, what does the science say? And it's like, you know, even the science, even if it's clear, it's not going to apply to every individual. So what you should be doing is just, you know, experimenting on yourself. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's actually advice that I don't hear too often, even from like self-help people, uh, probably because they're trying to sell their own stuff, right? Yeah, that um, makes sense. Yeah, now I kind of want to talk a lot about uh, uh, about life philosophy or like individual philosophy, but uh, it's uh, it's about your time to go, right? So uh, I think this is goodbye. Well, we should save something for the follow-up. So yeah, I'd be happy to do that some other time. Yeah, awesome. I'd love to do a follow-up eventually. Uh, goodbye. Okay, thank you. Bye. That was the interview with Richard Hanania. It came together really well, so I don't really have many regrets. The one I already mentioned in the intro is that I do like to do a bit of Trump dunking as well, and we didn't quite have enough time for that. But, well, it's a kind of, it's a kind of food group thing, right? You get in what's important first. Other than that, it was just a very satisfying interview. There's plenty of room for more, so I'd be happy to see Richard again on the show as well. If you'd also like to listen to such a show, then you can of course subscribe. And if you like this show, then as always, please share and please just let people know about the podcast, especially since it's just starting out. See you next time.